It's September 17th, 2020. This is Rook. Here's a stark reality. No matter how much we celebrate the success, ingenuity, and resilience of Iranians in the diaspora and back in Iran, we cannot escape the shame of human rights violations that continue in the country of our heritage. Now an upswing in political executions has drawn the attention of the world, but even a global outcry could not prevent the killing of Navid Afkari this week. Today on Rook, three different angles and voices from the diaspora on atrocities in Iran. Hadi Qaimi from the Center for Human Rights, celebrated author and activist Shahnoush Parsipur, and award-winning screenwriter and director Cyrus Narastair all join me for feature interviews. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Welcome to episode number 45 of Rook. Salam azan. This is a very big show today. Very much uh, to get to. We are so glad you're joining us. Hope you'll stick through this episode with all that we're going to throw at you here. The, 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 the Rook Thursday team has assembled with me. Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Groovy Shaya. Hi, Zian. Khubin. Khubastam. Okay. Yes. Uh, excellent. And the fabulous Keon, hello. Hi, Gian. How are you? I am very well. Thank you. Nice to see you. Good to see you, too. We've had so much feedback from this Fadid Zoland interview from Monday. This is the uh, legendary songwriter, composer, Fadid Zoland, the man behind all these iconic uh, Persian pop hits and compositions. Mm. Uh, and I'm quite happy that we got his story. He was as open as he was. Uh, this is an interview that seems to be connecting with a lot of people. So we've we've heard a lot of comments. This is uh, about his compensation, the lack thereof, about copyright, about publishing. Uh, if you haven't checked that out, our last episode of Rook, Fadid Zoland, uh, it was quite a 90 minutes. We mixed a lot of music into that too. And by the way, the interview is subtitled. It's conducted in both uh, Farsi and English with English subtitles throughout. So that's something that was sort of novel for us as well. And I know we got a lot of letters about it as well. So we're going to get to that Definitely, right here. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, as we've been um, happy to see the amount of uh, traction this uh, Farid Zalan interview has gotten and for his sake as well, uh, it's also been a difficult week with this, um, um, the aftermath of the, 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 the murder, the, the execution of uh, Nabi Dafkari, the star wrestler in Iran. And so we have an episode uh, that is dealing in different ways with this issue. First of all, directly, Hadi Khaimi from the Center, uh, the Executive Director from the Center for Human Rights in Iran is joining me in just a few moments first. But then we have Sharnush Pasipur on for a feature interview. She is the legendary Iranian writer. She's written eight books much of her work is very well known in in Iran and beyond, 
All of the books have been banned in Iran. She's been put in prison four times, uh, once for a number of years throughout the 1980s and, and then the early 90s. Um, she wrote a riveting prison memoir about that. I'll ask her about all of that, including sitting in prison and uh, hearing the sound of gunfire, the sound of executions in Evian when she was there in the 1980s. It's just, uh, it's difficult stuff, but she's also this uh, uh, incredible voice who's in the diaspora that uh, is so precious. And I'm so grateful she's going to be joining us in about 45 minutes from now. Cyrus Narostere. Um, Captain Reza, you're an actor. You would know yeah, who Cyrus sure. is, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, very familiar with this. Um, uh, Cyrus has got a brand new film that he's directed uh, coming out called Infidel, a feature film. Uh, but he's also the man who was the producer and director of the film uh, the, the Stoning of Soraya M. And he's a screenwriter who's been all over Hollywood doing having all kinds mm. of success. So he comes at, at uh, uh, <laughs> I suppose, I mean, you could say that the Stoning of Soraya M certainly is about an ex- execution as well. He comes at this from the, the angle of a, a Hollywood screenwriter uh, an American who uh, was born with Iranian background and certainly has focused a lot of his work on uh, on the Middle East and on Iranian issues. So Cyrus will join us after Shahnoush. So it's a it's a, a big show today. How was your week, Kia? I, I I've been doing a lot of biking and tennis, particularly this. You summer. know, you're very active. I try every to time. Be. I, every week, I ask you how was your week, yeah, and it's usually something about being physically active. Yeah, I never had time for this until quarantine hit, and it forced us to get creative with ways to entertain ourselves. That's so, it, so great. It's been a blessing in disguise. Yeah, to be quite honest. yeah. yeah. You're, you're super. You're in shape. You. Well, you it's usually about eating or <laughs> physical activity. For That's you. why I have to be active. <laughs> I'd be 300 pounds if that wasn't the case. Ah, uh, and. Shia, how has your week been? Um, it was good. It was good. Yeah, right. I like your cola caps. <laughs> yeah, we're both. Oh, yeah, the we cola both cap. have cola caps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're both black. Yeah. It's like a team, color coordinated. Um, I should mention uh, Mo Rahimian. Mo Rahimian in Shufin is uh, someone that uh, we owe a debt to for uh, today's episode. You know, he worked in electronics in Iran. He came to Canada in two thousand and two. Started over again, entrepreneur, has done radio, TV, and print in his life, but went into the financial field in Canada, health insurance. He's now a financial advisor and insurance broker. In Shufin, deals with insurance, finance, finances, investment, but also, Mo has said, I'm a Canadian-Iranian, I love and respect Canada, but I'm a proud Iranian, and all the money I've earned... I put back into the community. This is true. This, he, I mean, his company does pretty well, but he takes his profits and he supports the Iranian community in films, events, art galleries. He sees that our community needs the support and wants to make it the, the legacy for members of that community to support each other. And he certainly does so. And he's supporting us on this episode of Rook. So thank you to Mo Rahimian and in Shufin. All right. So we got the letters of the week. Coming up in a little while, the Rook team is here. Let's get to our first guest. Uh, well, as many of you listening know, the execution of the young Iranian wrestler Navid Afkari in the early morning hours of September 12th this past weekend has sparked global outrage. Navid was executed by the governments of the Islamic Republic of Iran for protesting against the regime during the 2018 unrest in Iran, as well as the alleged murder of an undercover security guard from the IRGC. Until the time of his execution, Navid insisted on his innocence and 
and stated that he was tortured into making false confessions. My first guest today is an internationally recognized expert on Iran and human rights. In 2008, together with the international human rights activists in the Netherlands, he founded the Center for Human Rights in Iran, the CHRI. The CHRI has since become a leading organization documenting human rights violations in Iran and building international coalitions to support human rights. Hadi Qa'emi is an Iranian-American professor of physics whose groundbreaking research in nanophysics has been published in prestigious scientific journals such as Nature, and he holds four patents in this field. Previously, he worked with Human Rights Watch, joining the organization in 2004 as the Iran and UAE researcher. His work at Human Rights Watch focused international attention on the plight of migrant workers in Dubai, as well as the repression of civil society in Iran. After the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, he was a member of the first UN-commissioned Human Rights Faculty finding mission to Afghanistan. Between 2001 and 2004, he worked with NGOs focusing on Afghanistan and Iraq. He is now the executive director at the Center for Human Rights in Iran, and Hadi Qa'imi joins me from New York today. Hello, sir. Uh, hello, and thank you for having me. It's very good to have you on the program, Hadi. Thank you for doing this, although I can only wish that the impetus for having you was something more positive. Indeed. Hadi, despite what feels like a, this unmitigated flow of sad news from Iran month after month, year after year, it was still a shock for many of us when we heard the news that Navid Afkari had been executed this past weekend, despite a global outcry and attempt to prevent the execution. Can I just begin by asking you on a personal level, as someone who's been dealing with these issues for years, what was your reaction when you were alerted to these, this news? Uh, well, on Saturday morning when we woke up and found out that the execution has taken place, it was a very sad day and totally shocking. Uh, because the, up to the night before, late night Friday in Iran, there was a lot of movement that seemed positive, pointing to the direction that Navid's life could be saved. And a lot of developments on the ground were pointing to that direction. So to wake up and find out that all of that had gone up into the smoke and Navid's life has been unjustly taken, it, it, it was very hurtful and uh, shocking. There's this um, notion or this uh, idea that the that the execution of political prisoners is actually on the rise in Iran. You and your team have been investigating human rights violations at least since 2007. So as an expert on this subject, do you see an uptick in the execution of political prisoners in Iran? Uh, absolutely. In the past year, we are seeing that a number of prisoners uh, politically charged are uh, on the death row have been put to death. And now we're seeing uh, at least 30 protesters over the past few years who have been in prison now are being charged with capital crimes like Navid and are in danger of execution. Uh, that is really unprecedented for me to see such a wave taking place so quickly. Well, I'm going to get into the reasons behind this wave uh, from your perspective, but let me just ask you some particulars of this case. First of all, there's so much around it, Hadi, as you know, that's so heartbreaking. From what I understand, his family and his lawyer were, were not even notified that he's going to be executed. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Nobody had any indication. Actually, the family was working very hard uh, towards saving his life, and Navid himself 
called his brother 11.30 local time in the evening, Friday night, which means is about five, six hours before he was hanged. And uh, the brother was smart enough to tape the conversation and has put it online. Uh, they are having a very confident uh, conversation that things are moving uh, in saving Navid. And uh, Navid actually in that conversation not only doesn't give any indication that he is about to be prepared to be executed, he says that they've told him that he is being moved to Tehran, to the capital. Um, the next morning, and that seems to be his frame of mind at the time. So it is. Uh, it seems like it was a complete surprise to himself too. Is it an aberration that no one was notified, or is that sometimes the case? No, unfortunately. Unfor unfortunately, we just had a political execution in mid-August, uh, and same pattern took place. Two prisoners were put to death and only afterwards the families were notified. Uh, this is all in contradiction to Iran's own rules and procedures for carrying out execution. And uh, they do these secret executions often in order to prevent any public outcry that may result in any uh, or may have any impact. And then a hasty burial, which I guess would be for the same reasons, right? So actually, we have been over the years focusing on the right to mourn, the right to have the body hold the funeral and mourn as the family wishes. That right is being trampled on very regularly too. At least in this case, they allowed the family be present uh, when they hastily buried him. We have cases where the body's been taken and buried in unknown places and the family doesn't even know. Uh, so that shows the insecurity of the people who carry out these executions. They want to cover their tracks as much as possible to the point that the family doesn't may not even know where the burial took place. But the right to mourn and hold funerals has been denied to families of political prisoners executed routinely. Wow. And so, Hadi, when, as per tradition, uh, Navid's uh, shroud was opened up to reveal his face at the time of the burial. From what I understand, it became clear that his nose had been broken and, and was bloodied. Uh, that has given rise to speculation that he may have died under beatings and, and, and then declared as executed as a cover-up. Is there any weight to this potential scenario? Uh, I'm not sure at the moment. There is some collaboration has come in, which we had not been aware of. Point, uh, there are witnesses now who claim that the family did see uh, hanging marks on his neck. Uh, this just came out to me late yesterday. And uh, in general, he was most probably executed by the state. The beatings, we know the night before, or a couple nights before, he and his brothers had been moved and beaten up. Because in the phone call to his brother on Friday night, he tells them that the head of judiciary came here, the head of the provincial judiciary met with him that on Friday with a medical examiner and he says that they documented at least uh, a dozen to 15 marks on our bodies and beatings. So the nose be uh, break, we don't know when it happened and if it may have been from a few nights ago. Uh, it's extremely difficult not being able to see an independent autopsy of the body, what was the cause of death. That's another thing we have always advocated and been denied to the families that what really happened. Uh, but at this stage, we believe it was the execution. Uh, 
and the beatings were from uh, the last few days. I, I know on some level it seems almost, um, uh, if not ridiculous, futile to try and make sense of, of, of senseless acts. But uh, how does the decision-making happen around this, and how far up the totem pole does it go? I mean, one can only imagine that this, this, this execution was no mistake or you know, delinquent action on the part of someone in the lower levels of the regime. In other words, with all the international attention focused on Nabid Afkari in recent weeks before his execution, do you think his ex- execution could have happened without a green light from the supreme leader? Absolutely not. I believe the head of the judiciary, Ayatollah Raisi, uh, probably made that decision in conjunction with the Office of the Supreme Leader. I know the Office of Supreme Leader was under tremendous uh, uh, attention by people approaching and asking them to get involved and uh, pardon him. I know that the major sports figure in Iran, part of the regime, part of the different federations of sports, had attempted the week before to go to his office, meet with him, ask for clemency or uh, retrial, and they turned them away and did not meet with them. So they were definitely involved. And again, a case that has so much uh, national and international attention on it, uh, no one would have uh, proceeded without a green light from higher ops, given that uh, it had co- uh, steered so many, uh, so much attention worldwide. You know, part of the heartbreak is is feeling the, the sense of naivete uh, when only recently we had celebrated, some of us had said, you know, celebrated this notion that actually a global outcry can make a difference. Because as you know, a few weeks before the this sudden execution of Navid, Iranians around the globe and others successfully launched this Twitter storm against the execution of three other young protesters. Uh, we dealt with that here on Rook. And that global effort, apparently, it seemed, forced the regime to halt those executions, albeit temporarily. Why didn't the same tactic work this time with Navid? Uh, indeed, indeed, there was a distinction here, and I need to modify your description of what happened about a month ago about three other young men on death row, which uh, their lives were spurred after much uh, outcry. That outcry indeed began inside Iran. That Twitter hashtag was started by an ordinary citizen that caught fire. And then those of us outside and internationally were following a domestic uproar. And it brought in very prominent figures of Iranian society from most well-known actors, actresses, social, cultural figures, uh, even uh, most people who usually are not daring to talk, to speak out on these issues did follow that uh, hashtag Twitter on uh, inside the country. And it was when all these voices in the country, uh, together with international protests, uh, really pushed back on their plan to execute them, and they did go ahead and declare a mistrial and retract. But this time, the people inside the country, first of all, uh, did not get as informed, and uh, most of the people, prominent people who wanted to speak out, I know some of the most important national athletes, uh, I know for sure, wanted to speak out, and they were approached and threatened and told to keep quiet. Uh, so much of the, the discourse and protests was uh, driven from outside, which was proper, 
but the regime in a way succeeded in keeping a gag order domestically and frightening people. You, you can't believe the number of prominent people who told me they have a position on this, they want to protest, but it absolutely is impossible and puts them in great danger. Meaning so someone, someone actually gets in touch with them and says, you better yep, not say yep, anything. Yep. Absolutely. That's exactly what happens. You mentioned that last phone call. In, in, in his last recorded phone call, Nabid specifically names an official mm-hmm. in the Shiraz prison by the name of Khadem al-Husseini as, as being responsible for his beatings and torture. Will, will, your organi- will the Center for Human Rights in Iran and, and other similar organizations be legally pursuing this individual in, in international courts? Uh, as much as it is possible. Unfortunately, international tribunals are not available to us for bringing cases. However, we could pursue sanctions and also especially the European Union has a strong laws that if such a person appears on their territory, they can arrest them. So yeah, there will be definitely a lot of attention focused on this individual. Uh, but I want to say this is systematic and we should not limit it to uh, a few people who are carrying out these orders and even if they are uh, have acted independently at some points, it is a policy given to them that free hand to torture and abuse and the makeup of false uh, accusations is something systematic in Iranian judiciary and I would hold the highest uh, authorities responsible for his behavior. So there's a, you know, when we hear about these things, there's a reflexive reaction on the part of many of us that, that this is the Iranian government, the Iranian regime doing this to just create more fear again. And, and uh, I, let me just ask you specifically about that, whether that is, the, there seems to be a consensus among Iran experts on the notion that these, these draconian sentences are being passed down by revolutionary courts as a deadly warning to people who may want to participate in future protests. That, that's certainly the orthodox analysis. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, I, I do agree looking at the type of people who are being accused and the charges brought against them. There is really hard to explain that why would such ordinary protesters who have very good reasons to protest would be targeted and uh, accused of such capital crimes. Uh, it is, uh, in my mind, a playbook of the Islamic Republic going back to its inception and consolidation of power in the 1980s when they really uh, rolled over everyone, every political obstacle and opposition they had through massive executions. We know that at least 10,000 political prisoners were executed in the 1980s. And the person at the helm of judiciary today, Ayatollah Raisi, was a young judge at the time who led Uh, many of these executions in the 80s. And I fear that uh, they feel the similar environment that they need to consolidate their illegitimate uh, um, power at the moment through massive repression and executions. And it is really sad to see how uh, comfortable they are with shedding innocent blood. Well, and I say this with some, uh, with with no shortage of dismay or disgust. But they seem to be winning. I mean, I, I, I mean, have these deadly warnings been been effective in subduing the populace? I, I speak to people, people I've spoken to inside Iran seem to be in survival mode, just trying to survive the best they can. So, so has the regime succeeded then, in a sense? 
this is something that history as it unfolds will show. What I can tell you is that, yes, they have all the major levers of political power. They have all the violent means at their hands. Uh, they control uh, basically uh, much of the country's socioeconomic political uh, powers but they are becoming more and more isolated from the bulk of the population. Just the fact that we have these spontaneous protests breaking out every few months in small and large towns without any leadership, without any organization, uh, and uh, hundreds of thousands of people join them out of the fact that they feel like there is no other way of changing their lives. People are very desperate. They're economically um, extremely desperate and politically feel like the regime has no legitimacy because they have no presence, no voice. Elections have become a uh, completely irrelevant because of the way they're manipulated and uh, in every other aspect of life uh, society feels uh, uh, suffocated so all of these pressures and the separation of people from their political establishment which is uh, to my mind is, is something has reached a new uh, a new peak in the past year, especially after November massacres on the streets. Um, it, that uh, they, they may succeed in the short term, but as we have seen every few months, people are going to seize the opportunity to bring out their voices. And uh, whether they can hold on to power, number one, if they do, they will be seen illegitimate, not representing the people, not pursuing their interests, and will make them more and more isolated. And eventually, a generation of Iranians will have had enough and will not be taking uh, this repression. But uh, again, because all levers of powers are in their hands and there is no uh, organized opposition or movement, they will they may succeed in short term. Well, but there's certainly no shortage of, of outcry outside of Iran. Uh, and, it, and it seems to be, I mean, one, it, it always feels like um, hopeful conjecture at times like this, but it, it seems to be uh, rallying in a unified way that, that we don't often see amongst a a polarized Iranian diaspora, the outcry yeah. around this, uh, with Navid in particular, in fact, this this week, um, and, and non-Iranians as well. I, I can't um, I can't help but uh, mention the fact that you were retweeted by by Joe Biden. I mean, the, uh, I should explain the tweet by the organization that you lead, that is the, the Center for Human Rights in Iran, condemning the execution of Navid Afkari, was retweeted by uh, the Democratic pres presidential candidate Joe Biden. Uh, President Donald Trump has had also called on Iranian authorities to spare Navid's life. So this is a strange moment where this uh, the polarized America is coming together. Would you say both parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, have a mutual stance on humans, human rights violations in Iran then? Oh, well, uh, that is really a question to put to them. In my mind, uh, uh, it, it is really good to focus on human rights in Iran without a political motivation. Or, or gaining political advantage from it. Uh, so I think the international community in general has failed for many decades to recognize 
that the repression in Iran should be front and center on their agenda in dealing with Iran. They always have treated it secondary or even trinary to the nuclear deal, to Iran's regional adventures and presence. Um, uh, But indeed, all of this bad behavior from Iran is driven from the fact that the government is independent of public opinion and none of these issues ever get to be discussed in Iran or be uh, having a, a public discourse on it. And that's the repression, censorship, imprisonment, and now killings, widespread killings. Again, I think that um, the real worry for all of us should be use of political violence at times like this and try to push back against that. So anyone, whether Democrat or Republican, I welcome if they are focused on preventing political violence and repression of Iranians at the hands of their government. You know, outside the United States, the the EU collectively and some member states such as Germany independently have come out with strong condemnations yes. uh, of the killing of Navi Afkari. Uh, so per your understanding of the regime's mentality, do any of these stances have any impact on the decision makers in, in Tehran? Um, I think they will if it, there is a tangible cost to be paid. What they have perfected is some kind of resistance to pressure from outside at times like this. And their calculation I've seen over and over is that, okay, this is going to be short term. There's going to be a lot of outrage, a lot of condemnations, even from country like Germany that has one of the largest trade and diplomatic uh, uh, relations with Iran. But their calculation is that, okay, this for a week or two may, you know, put us in hot waters, but uh, larger interests of other governments will always bring them back. And uh, that's why we hope that uh, there comes a, a critical point where the international community realizes that this should not be episodic and uh, short-term approaches to such outrages, and there should be continued policy making around that outrage so that it indeed has a continuous cost for the Iranian government. Uh, And that is when I think we will see change, when they truly find themselves isolated and incapable to operate in any domain internationally. They're really pushing themselves toward that level of isolation, I'm afraid. So so before I let you go, tell tell me, um, if you can, how you how you stay strong or how you believe when you're when you're the executive director of an organization like yours you are i'm 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 guessing you're dealing on a daily basis with atrocities and and it may be hard to see the way out of all this in in a few minutes we have the great writer writer shahnush parsipur coming on the program um As you know, Hadi, among other things, she's written a riveting memoir of her time in prison in Iran, including Avin, where she writes uh, movingly and and distressingly about the fact that she would hear these noises uh, on the hour and she would know that they were executions and she would count them on a daily basis. People being killed just down the hall from her every day. This is in the 1980s. Um, as as horrible as that is, it also feels like uh, plus la même chose, that the more things change, the more things stay the same when it comes to Iran and this, this regime. How do you stay positive in doing the work you do? 
Uh, well, it is not easy. And indeed, when I started doing this work in about 15, 20 years ago, uh, Iran was in a very different place. It had a reformist president and had somewhat opened up and it looked like the momentum toward a new direction was irreversible. And during those years, I truly felt like I am part of supporting a movement in Iran that will only better the country and be, good, be seeing results of it, uh, well, you know, uh, within uh, years and a decade, not longer. Unfortunately, starting 2005 with the rise of Ahmadinejad and then uh, hardliners completely uh, trampling over reformers and dominating political powers. It has been one continuous uh, fall after another in terms of improvements. Um, and now we have really reached a new era. Uh, we should have mentioned that the last large protests that took place were in November 2019, and the government shut down internet for one week and carried out yes. a mass massacre of protesters that uh, I believe at least a thousand people were killed. They yes. themselves have uh, uh, admitted to about 200, which is not small either. Um, but what really uh, drives me is a, a, a persuasion that I have to be an optimist and that what we and uh, our like-minded activists are doing in Iran and outside, it's something that has to be done no matter how strong the government is. It is a repressive government that does not repre represent interests of the people. And uh, we are building foundation of a movement that hopefully, regardless of who is in political power, uh, there would be insistence on respect for human life and basic uh, principles of human rights. Uh, I agree that I don't see that happening anytime soon in Iran, uh, but I want to point two things. One is that I always focus on the positive trends, which is in Iran is the way society and culture have developed under this regime. They have completely gone parallel or in opposite to official narratives mm -hmm. and demands on society. So I've seen on many issues, whether it is discrimination against minorities and religious minorities, or LGBT community or Baha'i community. Um, the, the generation after generation who has grown up the last 20 years has become very sensitive to these issues. And of course, Internet has helped a lot for them to feel more connected uh, to the outside world. And uh, at least I see ordinary people's attitudes changing. Uh, toward many of these violations that were not just government-driven, but unfortunately were capitalizing on cultural attitudes too. Those cultural attitudes are changing. Uh, the whole issue of death penalty, let's put it in, uh, in context. Iran is a leading executioner worldwide. It has executed in the entire 15 years, I followed it every year, more people per capita than any other country. It's the, one of the few countries that continues to hang people for crimes that they, um, that they charge under the age of 18. So they're still putting children to death. Uh, 
child offenders. So uh, up to five, six years ago, there were public executions, uh, very much reminiscent of public lynchings in the U.S. in the uh, previous decades, where large groups of actually citizens would come out and uh, form of entertainment almost to see someone executed on the street corners. Uh, that All those cultural attitudes have changed. And I see, especially with death penalty, there is a, a repugnance that why is this state killing people, especially uh, with such judicial processes which have a lot of question marks on them. So what I capitalize uh, psychologically and mentally are these cultural shifts that I've seen over different generations and hoping those are really what define the future of Iran as a better future. I try to be focused 10, 20 years from now that all this work that seems in the short term to fall flat and actually things get worse and worse every day are having an impact beneath the surface and we will see it um, in the longer term that uh, whatever political system, again, this, this regime cannot maintain its political identity the way it is. Uh, I believe it's undergoing transition. The Supreme Leader is old. He will be gone soon within you know, years, and uh, the entire political system has to transit to something new. I don't know what, I don't know if there will be regime change, these are all unpredictable. Uh, but I'm hoping whatever political system comes out of this Islamic Republic the way it is, it will uh, be more respectful of the, cul uh, the culture of Iranian society and the demands of public opinion. Um, and uh, the last thing to note is that when you look at the past 100, 150 years of modern Iranian history, every major event has been, um, or upheaval, has really fallen out of the sky overnight. Right. Uh, whether it's the rise of going back to 1920s, the rise of Pahlavi dynasty uh, was completely you know, unforeseen, the 1953 coup, the 1979 revolution itself, famously, no one saw it on the radar. And the 2009 Green Movement uprising, which was massive, again, it literally came out of nowhere. So I believe there are a lot of factors beneath the surface that could surprise us. But in the meanwhile, someone like me just cannot give up, given people in Iran are... Um, are fighting hard against these injustices uh -huh. even if they are repressed and we have to support them and this is laying foundations for something long term and I've seen positive impact on the culture and society if not the government for them. Well when you say we have to support them uh, a final question and I know that there are no magical answers or prescriptions here um, but uh, I, I think the question that many in the diaspora, people who listen to this program sitting somewhere in Vancouver or L.A. or Berlin or Sydney uh, are grappling with is what they can do to prevent the repeat of these atrocities, what we can do to support the people inside Iran, especially since the regime seems to have little or no respect for public opinion uh, inside Iran or abroad for that matter. Do you have any wisdom around this? 
Uh, I'm not sure if it's wise, but the way I see it, Iranian diaspora abroad is a very large community. It's very successful. It's very wealthy. It's very professional. It is accomplished. It has a lot of potential. And the thing that, that to impact the course of events in Iran. And what is preventing us to be more impactful is unfortunately for the moment, divisions and differences uh, seem to be emphasized much more than unity and a unity of purpose and action. Uh, we see in, ca in cases of like Navid and especially death penalty, uh, people of all political persuasions do seem to be able to unite. I hope we find more causes and more uh, leadership to bring the community together because it has the resources and potentials to uh, to impact the uh, future of Iran. And uh, uh, we just need to be more focused on how to unify those resources and have a united front that uh, emphasizes our overlaps rather than our differences. Hadi John, I, I, I thank you so much for your time. I can only imagine it's a very busy week for you, and, and um, uh, I really appreciate it, and I hope you'll come back on this program soon, sir. I would love to. I would love to, Gian John. It was a great pleasure finally talking to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Hadi Qaimi, the Executive Director for the Center for Human Rights in Iran. He spoke to us from New York today. به هم نگاه بد نکن با هم دوست باشیم و دست بندازیم روشونه های هم آها مثل بچگی ها تو دبستان هیچ کدوممونم نیستیم بیکار در حال ساخت و ساز ایران واسه اینکه خسته نشیم بار من خشت بذارم تو سیما بعد این همه بارون خون بالاخره پیداش میشه رنگین کمون دیگه از سنگ ابر نمیشه آسمون به سرخی لاله نمیشه آب جو معزن ازام بگو خدا بزرگ بلا به دور مامان امشب واسمون دعا بخون Yeah, a little taste of Heech Cass from 2009 and a song called Yeruza Khub Miyad. The Rook team is still assembled here. Kian Reza Shaya coming up. We have the Rook uh, Letters of the Week. And Cyrus Naraste is joining me in about an hour on his new film, Infidel, which is about to go into wide release around the world. And his journey as an American director and screenwriter of Iranian background, he's the guy who made the, uh, the film The Stoning of Saraya M., which you may have seen or heard of, a film that was banned in Iran. Uh, speaking of creative output that has been banned, let me get to our next feature guest and a, a very special one indeed. You know, for decades, many Iranian writers have been under fire because their work has been deemed too radical or too lewd, having been banned, imprisoned, or discriminated against. Today, many are scattered around the world in exile, deprived of the prominence of the spoken language around them that is the tool of their trade, far from home in hope of literary recovery. Well, my next guest, today is one of the most powerful and fearless writers who has picked up the pen in her fight against the Iranian government's suppression and imprisonment of writers and, of course, the current regime's history of executions and human rights violations. Shahnoush Parsipur is a prominent novelist and was, in fact, the second Iranian woman ever to have written a novel after Simin Donashvar. Shahnoush was born in Tehran and earned a degree in sociology from the University of Tehran. She began her career 
career as a fiction writer and producer at Iranian National Television Radio. She grew into an author who has written about the condition of women in Iran, taboo issues and ideas, and the consequences of a highly patriarchal society and culture. Every one of her books, eight works of fiction and a memoir, have been banned in Iran. She's been imprisoned four times for her writings and actions, both by the the Shah and the Islamic Republic regimes, and at one point being imprisoned by the Khomeini regime for nearly five years. Women Without Men, the novel that landed Shahnoush in prison twice in 1990 and 1991, was banned in Iran, but still became an underground bestseller there and has been translated into many languages around the world and formed the basis of a film by Shirin Nashat. After many jaunts to and from the diaspora, Shahnoush finally fled Iran and has been living in the United States as a political refugee since 1994, where she has received a Lillian Hellman Dashiell Hammett Award from the Fund for Free Expression. And in 2003, she became the first recipient of Brown's International Writers Project Fellowship. Kissing the Sword, the prison memoir of Shahnoush Parsipur, was published as a paperback in 2013, and she has been an important important voice of opposition to censorship for the Iranian diaspora. And right now, Shahnush Parsipur joins me from Northern California today. Hello. Hello, dear. How are you? I am so very grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. I have a good uh, salam for <laughs> your friends that they hear us. Okay. Shahnush, there is so much to talk about when it comes to you. I feel like we could spend an entire episode on each of your books alone, but I, I thought today we might discuss the psychological, the physical, the material effects of being banned and imprisoned by the regime in Iran. And I want to start with something you say at the beginning of this uh, riveting prison memoir, which I had the chance to read this week. You say, work is always a savior, and my work is to write. Tell me about writing being a savior to you. You know, when I was a child, I read a lot of books. And I always thought, if one day I will write. And so from the moment that I knew myself, I wanted to write. And writing is my job. This is it. Not just a job, but it's a savior. How is it a savior? Savior because you when you work, you save your life. Not materialistic, not only materialistically, but also spiritually. Because with job, with a work, with a, something that you do, you live in the world and you find a meaning. Is writing cathartic for you? If you're having a tough time, is writing the outlet for you? Yes, but now I don't write. It's uh, two years, three years that I don't write. And I'm not happy, but uh, this is it because writer's block. I am in this mood and... Uh, but it's not important because I try to read the interesting books. Uh, recently I finished Iliad and after that Odyssey. You know, they are the book of uh, Homer. Of course. And so 
I enjoy writing of others. It is important, though, given that it's not been, as you say, just your, your bread and butter, although it's been difficult to, to make a big living from that when your books have been banned and, and uh, there's been so much difficulty around them. But because it's your catharsis, because we just started this conversation talking about it being your savior, it makes it all the more heartbreaking if you can't write right now. What is the process of not writing, if, if, you can, if I can put it that way? In other words, do you sit down in front of a piece of paper or a computer and nothing comes out or do you not even try no idea I don't try I don't try because I know that I cannot write I am in righteous block you really and I know it it's interesting you know when I was reading your prison memoir you talk about how you didn't make notes while you were being detained, how in retrospect you retain and remember the emotions and the details and even the names, and, and then you write. Um, can you not engage in that kind of approach now? What do you think the, the source of the writer's block is now? I, I must be in Iran to write. Because in the United States, I am here, but in reality, I live in Iran. I am always with the Iranians, I read Iranian books, I look at the film with Persian language. Uh, so I am reading Iran, but not really. I am here in the United States, and I don't touch the society. So little by little, my mind uh, has frozen. Yes. And uh, so... If I go back to Iran, perhaps I can write. I don't know. This is remarkable. Um, because it, this, your whole story is this ongoing um, tension between you and the country of your birth and the country of your love, the country of, of, of our heritage. And now you're talking about the fact that those, your very writing has to do with you being Iran. And I, and I suppose right now you could not go back to Iran without it being a problem for you, right? Yes, if I go, they will bother me, I'm sure. So in a sense, you haven't left imprisonment. You were imprisoned in Iran. You come outside of Iran to the United States and you're in a prison because you can't be in the place where you can actually do your creative craft. Yes, of course. I'm happy here. I haven't any problem with the American life. Really, I am happy. But at the same time, I am empty. I have an empty in my mind. I cannot touch the society of the United States because... Uh, I don't know, I am not in touch with the people. But I am always with the Iranians here. You know. Can you be happy and empty at the same time? Yes, why not? I don't believe that's true of you. Me. I don't think Shahnush Parsipur can be happy and empty at the same time. It's possible, you know. I'm empty because I don't touch the society of the United States. For example, I don't look at TV. 
Why not? Why not? Why don't you integrate? Why don't you watch CNN and get involved in American uh, life and politics and, and all of that? What would be, why wouldn't you do that? Because I have nothing to assert. <laughs> right. Yes, I have nothing to assert. Let's come back to where you're at right this right now, and let let take take me back first of all, because you said um, in the beginning there, you said from the very beginning you had an interest in in being a writer in literature from an early age. Did did you actually in Iran when you're a kid? Did you think about being a novelist, even though there were very few female role models for you to follow? Is this something you, you actually thought you could or would do? I didn't think about women or men. I read the books, you know, and the writers are always the men, you know what I mean? Sometimes the women. So I wanted to be a writer, not because I am a woman, because I was a writer. And so I became a writer. Was your family, was your mother, um, encouraging of you being a writer when you were young? Yes, and my mother also, she wanted to be a writer. She wrote something, or some articles in a journal, and uh, she was very happy with writing. She wanted to be a writer, and even in the prison, she wanted to write a novel. But I don't know why she didn't do that. You actually end up doing your first degree in sociology, even though you have this interest in literature. Why sociology? Because I knew a man that he was finished his uh, education in sociology. And I thought he was very educated. He was a very clear man. He had a very philosophic manner. So I thought if I uh, studied sociology, I'd become a very sage woman. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that worked. That's true. <laughs> um, it, it's it's impossible to talk about your trajectory without talking about turbulence and imprisonment. Uh, you'll forgive me for going right there, but I can't. I mean, you you become a writer at a young age uh, and a producer for uh, Iranian national television and radio. This is by the early seventies then, and your first arrest is under the Shah, is due to protesting the unjust execution of two poets from the intellectual circles of Tehran. On the basis of that protest, you resign your position at Iranian National Television Radio and you are imprisoned. What, what can you tell us about that time? You know, the reason of my arrestation was another thing. Uh, somebody has wrote a story in a journal, in a magazine. And in this uh, story, she wrote about a woman who was guilty by the, I don't know, by the fire. I cannot explain clearly because my English is in این بود که یه نفر یه داستان نوشته بود و در اون داستان اسم خانومی رو برده بود که اون خانوم جزده پرونده 
Okay, so the reason behind your arrest was that someone had written a story, and in that story they had named a woman that was related to two dissidents who'd been executed. Right, and, and the writer had put that woman's address in the story to create trouble for her to go and, and kill her. And when they arrested her, in her fear, she said, Shahnush Parsipur told me to write this. Yeah. And they come after and, you. And so they arrested, they arrested me to find why I did it. And then I really didn't do that. So it was the problem. It's the first of many times you're taken to prison for doing things that you haven't done. Uh, so what was it like to, to have to give up your job at Iranian national television and radio? من you, you resigned in, in honor, in, in protest of them. Yeah. Yeah. Shahnush, after that time, you travel to Paris in 1976. You continue your studies in Chinese, Indian, and Iranian mythology at the Sorbonne. Uh, mythology is a recurring theme in many of your works, such as uh, Blue Logos and Tuba and Women Without Men. What what can you tell us about those years in Paris? What what were those years like for you? It was a very nice time. I had a small apartment, but I liked it very much. My son, he was in a, a school, and uh, every night I tried to learn Chinese, mm-hmm. and I wrote the Chinese character till morning. And then I wrote one of my best books in there. The name of the book is uh, A Small Adventure of the Spirit of the Tree. Yes. It was the, the continuation of the book, Dog and the Long Winter. And I was in a very interesting mood. I had French friend in uh, university, and we were very happy. It was a very good time. You know, I know it had inspired writing in you in Paris, and everything I've heard and seen uh, from your time in Paris, it sounds like, um, I mean, it sounds like a romantic time, to be honest, a beautiful time to be in Paris. And your story is quite remarkable because it is the inverse of the prototypical story of those in the cultural and intelligentsia circles who flee Iran. A lot of the guests, even a lot of the prominent say, Iranian-Americans that I've spoken to on this program in the last few months are people who left Iran in that period, say, between 1978 and 1981. You actually returned to Iran in 1980 at the height of the revolutionary changes Given that your experience was so good in Paris, why? Why did you go back to Iran in 1980? Because I was a writer. I knew if I live in France, I will lose my career as a writer. I wanted to be in Iran. At the same time, there is another problem. When I was in Iran, I divorced my husband. 
and I had a, an American fiance. And the people told me, oh, oh, he's a spion. A spion is collectible. Uh, a, a what? Uh, say again? And they told me he's a, a spy. A spy, a spy. By the way, I, I should mention you, you didn't just, you, you had a very prominent husband as well. Yes. Yes, but I divorced him. After that, I found a fiancé, American fiancé. Okay. Uh, he was very intellectual. He spoke seven languages, and he was very educated. But the people told me he's a spy. It's not possible a man with, who speaks seven languages come to Iran and be a normal person. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> So, so wait, wait so a minute. I, wait a minute. This is this is before you go to Paris. Yeah. Okay. So you're having an affair with the guy who's a who people think is a spy because he's smart and speaks a lot of languages. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so at last I left him and I went to France. Yes. And then when the revolution began, I thought, okay. Oh. I must go back to Iran and find if he really was a spy. Was it you wanted to go back and find out if he's a spy or you wanted to go back and see him because you loved him? I, no, no. Oh. I wanted to be free of suspicion. Ah. I wanted to be free of everything. And he was still in Iran because, in 1980? Yes, he was in Iran. Okay. And they captured him in prison for a certain time. Then he found that he has nothing. He's not a spy. And they left him go to go. And w what happened when you came back and saw him? In 19 no, I didn't saw him. Oh, you didn't see him? Oh, that's kind of... Uh I didn't see him, yeah. Oh. What happened to him? <laughs> now I'm I'm caught up in the story of the guy who was who might have been a spy. <laughs> uh, I haven't. I don't know. I didn't see this story anywhere. This is new to he me. He went to England. Okay. And uh, make a Hanukkah. Uh, oh, oh, like a monastery? Yes, for the Iranians, and he was with Mister Elahi. Uh, oh, Elahi, okay. I think, or something that. Okay. He's a Arif. You know, a, a Sufi. A, yes, a dervish. he is. A Sufi. Ah. He lives always with the Iranians in England. In a Khanera. So, you you come back to Iran in 1980. Um, you're there. Your mother's there. Your brother's there. It, it, this is. Uh, I want to get into this story. It, it, this is a horrible and heartbreaking story of how you end up in prison with your mother and many, many others in Evian in 1981. There's this story of this letter that you had written to Masoud Rajavi, um, which, you, which you never sent to him. Um, and, but it's an interesting story. Can you tell the story of what happened with this letter? Yes, I wrote a letter for Rajavi because at that moment, when I went to the streets, I saw the Mujahideen who sold the journals and they cried and they were very uh, angry and everything like this. Yes. When I looked at them, I, knew, I was sure 
that as soon as possible they will die. They they will execute them. Yes, especially the younger followers of Rajavi. You knew that if they uh, that that they were going to be executed by the regime at this point. Yes. So I wrote a letter to Rajavi, and in this letter I told Sir, it's very clear that as soon as possible you will lose your power. So my suggestion is go back to your home with your followers because it's the only way to live. I wrote something like this. I read my letter to two of my friends and they told me, okay, political group doesn't accept this suggestion. Yes. It's not possible. So So don't send it. Yeah, I, I did send it for him. But given that you weren't, uh, as far as, uh, you weren't a member of the Mojahideen Khaq, or you, you weren't a follower necessarily, why why did it occur to you that you wanted to um, write a letter to, to Masoud Rajavi? There were a lot of people, you know. And I was worried for the Iranian young people. You know... There's quite a feeling one gets reading your memoir. I mean, the story is that then the authorities then come in and they find this letter and it's just one of the excuses they give to take you to prison. And Shadnush, you describe how your mother, your brother, and even you could not imagine that you would be imprisoned for very long since you hadn't done anything. When they come to your house to take you, in fact, you bring little with you because you think you'll be back home that night. And the subtext is that as aware as you could have been about this Islamist regime finding its bloody footing by 1981, even you underestimated how random, how savage their reign of oppression and terror would be. Can you speak to that? Could you have anticipated how bad it would be? No, because I was sure that I did nothing, you know. I wasn't in any activity, political activity. So I was astonished why I must go to the prison. I knew that the reason is the journals of my, the wife of my brother. But it was not important because at that moment, all the people read this type of journals. And it was not important to have them. Yes. I went to prison and they showed me the letter of Rajavi. And I told them, okay, sir, I told him, don't do anything, go back to your home. It wasn't anything in my letter. Yes, you were telling, you were actually saying to Rajavi uh, to tell his um, folks to stand down, don't oppose this regime anymore, go home. Yeah. But even the kind of conversations you're having with your mother at that time suggests that it was clear that you or or no one else imagined it would become as bad as it did. Yes, but it was the moment of war, you know, and the young people that they were in the different political groups. Yes. They worked hard to show themselves and... It was natural that the government wanted to execute them. So they did it. Well. And some people like me and my mother 
was there because of nothing. When you talk about execution, um, look, I, I, I cannot shake an image from your prison memoir. It is, uh, your writing is very powerful. I mean, I've obviously, <laughs> everyone knows that. When you are in Evin, with, uh, as you say, no formal charges or even explanation for you being there, you start hearing noises and you realize uh, after a while that it's a machine gun fire and then bullets to the head as they are executing people in the prison. You can hear this. And you start counting, along with some of the other women in jail with you, the number of shots you hear in order to know how many executions there have been each day. I, I, I am horrified just reading your words about those moments. You lived it. Do you ever stop hearing those sounds of those bullets? Have you found a way to suppress that or compartmentalize that, or does it still haunt you? When I left the prison, I was really sick. I wanted to die. I, I cried always. When I washed myself, I cried because I didn't want to cry in front of my son and my family. But when I wrote the book, the memory of prison left me alone. Huh. Writing was your savior. Yeah. Can you think about that time in prison um, w without getting upset? Or can you think about it almost academically, or is it too, too hard to go there in your mind? The memory of prison? Yes. When you were hearing the executions in particular. I was really upset. I don't know. Do you try not to think about it? No, but uh, all the people were sick in the prison because of these executions. Shanush, you mentioned the different groups. You, you know, the divisions in Evin, the leftists, the Mujahids, the monarchists, you weren't sure where you were supposed to fit in at first. And in some ways, this balkanized prison culture is actually a metaphor for what remains a divided Iranian community. Like decades later, it's the same groups. Can you speak to that? Yes. Prisoners divide between Mujahideen monarchist and leftist. And uh, my mother was with the monarchist because naturally she was a monarchist, you know. Mm. But when they arrested him, she told she had the Mujahid in Jordan. So she was between two groups. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, we were there in prison and we were individual, separated from other prisoners. So, because we, we really we hadn't any group band. You say something remarkable about your time in prison in the 1980s. Uh, this is maybe the definitive thing you say. You say, in truth, deep in my heart, I was also somehow happy 
I was in prison during that terrifying time. When you are free, you inevitably feel compelled to act, but in prison, you are powerless. What did you mean by that? Yeah, because imagine that you are in this society and they execute the young people. What do you do? You, you stop and look at these people? Naturally, you try to do something against this, uh, this job. Yes. But in prison, you have no power to do anything. So you are more happy, no? Because you cannot do. You don't feel the weight of responsibility because you can't do it. You're, you're yeah. stuck in a cage. Yes. I don't know if that's true for everybody, though. I think that's you. I think that that's, that's someone like you knowing that if you were outside of prison, you would have to do something or you would be disappointed in yourself. I mean, there's a lot of people who stay quiescent or out of fear or uh, out of weakness or whatever it is. They, they, they don't want to or protecting their family. They, they don't speak out. They don't do something. This is something that you couldn't do. You couldn't be outside of prison and stay quiet, right? Yes, naturally. I was like this. And I think a lot of people were like me. They wanted to do something, but they can't do that. They cannot do that. So it's natural, no? Well, I suppose so. I understand what you mean, but I have to say reading about your life in prison, it was quite horrible there as well. I wonder while reading your memoir how you even made it through at times. It's remarkable that you came out of this and when you are finally free to leave prison this is by the late 1980s it's not all good either you cannot find a publisher who will publish your works because you're too toxic and there's too much fear of association with you tell me about the paradox of being free from jail but being in the cage of being unable to have a career and make a living in iran it was very hard of course, I wrote my book, Tuba and the Meaning of Night, in prison. They, they confiscated it and I burned it. And I rewrote it in, when I was in, out of prison. My book has published one week after the death of Ayatollah Khomeini. In 1989. And it yes. burst. Really, it burst. Burst is correct word. I don't uh, know. I don't know what the which which word you're in. Misapplied. Uh huh. It, it, it burst. It it exploded. Yeah. Yeah. And so after that, I found a lot of problems. They wanted to buy me. They wanted to have it me your their hand. They bothered me every day. They confiscated the book, woman without hand. And I went again to prison, and I found a lot of problems. So, sorry, did you say that you had written to by the meaning of night in prison, and then uh, they they confiscated it? So you rewrote it? Yes. <laughs> From, oh. Wow! From memory, right? You had to. I mean, you re you had to redo the whole thing once you left prison, right? Yes. 
that's i mean that in itself would drive somebody crazy having to to re- rewrite an entire book it, it so it comes out in 89 you you have trouble getting published the interesting part of your story is um I mean, I know what you're going to say to this. You're going to say, no, I had to do this. I'm a writer. But you could have, I don't know, you could have left prison and, um, I, I don't know, worked at a university, a coffee shop, uh, uh, <laughs> done something benign, something that doesn't get you in trouble. Um, Shadows, you keep pushing. Uh, you keep pushing. I, I had the chance to read uh, Women Without Men this week. It is outstanding, of course, in its poignance and poetry and its meditation on patriarchy and the themes, sexuality, infidelity, virginity, domestic abuse. You courageously explore these themes in the patriarchal world of post-revolutionary Iran, speaking frankly about them as someone who'd been imprisoned a few times. So at that stage in the early 90s, what motivates you to publish such bold novels in in one of these dark periods of Iranian history? How did you find the courage? You know, I never afraid of Ayatollah Khomeini. I saw him in parts. <laughs> one day we went to Beaufort Chateau and I saw Khomeini in 10 meters in front of me. This would be in the late 70s? Uh, yes. Okay. And I thought, okay, this man is nothing. And this was my idea, you know. I never was under the influence of Khomeini or his charismatic uh, position. Of course. I found always that he is nothing. And so I, I didn't afraid of anything. You're telling me that even after being in prison for years, even after knowing all those women that you were in prison with who were executed, even after knowing the trouble you could get into again and how close you yourself came to death, you still wouldn't be intimidated. And what is the meaning of intimidated? No. I didn't uh, afraid, no. I didn't afraid. Why, why, how, how do you, how, how can you not be afraid? I love it, but I want to know. I want to know how you were not afraid. Because I didn't afraid, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> because you saw Khomeini in Paris and it wasn't impressive. Oh. Well... Uh, can you put into words, you said that when you came out of prison, you were sick. Um, can, can you put into words what what it's like to have put all your um, mental and creative energy into completing a work, whether it's Tuba or whether it's Women Without Men, that is hailed as brilliant, only to have the fellow citizens of your country be unable to read it? What What is it like for you? What was it like for you, emotionally, psychologically, to have your books banned? All my books are in Iran, and the people read them. Oh, the only problem is that they don't pay anything to me. Right, you make no money from that. No, but the people read them. This is the reason. This is the something that I know it. Of course, and you're used to it now. But when, 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 I'm just thinking as an artist, to spend the kind of time that you spend writing a book 
only to have a government, a state, a regime, um, decree that no one's allowed to read it. H- how do you even deal with that emotionally? You know, from the moment that I went from prison, I was out of prison, till the moment that I left Iran, I was always in tumult and problems. I had a lot of problems. I had a lot of problems with government. Yes. I had a lot of problems with the publishers. I had a lot of problems with the everything. So after that, I was in the United States. And I had no time to think, okay, my book are banned. I knew that they are banned. Right. But at the same time, in the black market, they read the books. They they have read the books, and uh, uh, it's very clear that all the people wanted, if they wanted, they could they could have my books. So only the problem of money. I didn't gain money from my books. But it wasn't just money. Um, the the cumulative effects of being jailed, Shatnush, and and having to fight censorship and suppression. When you immigrate finally to the United States in the 1990s, as I understand it, after a short period of traveling in the U.S., you go to England and you have a mental breakdown. Uh, So much so you have to return to Iran for medical care. So this is having an effect on you physically. Can can you tell us about this, this mental breakdown you had? Yes, the first time. I had a nervous breakdown in the moment that I wrote the book, Blue Logos. Yes. If you read this book, you find why I had nervous breakdown. And now there is a translation of the book in English. Yes. You can find it. Yes. And you can read it. It was a very heavy book. And my first nervous breakdown was at this moment. After that, I didn't do anything as a psychiatric uh, darman. I don't know the word. Uh, the tre- the, treatment, the treatment psychiatric treatment. Yeah. Yes. Why did you need to return to Iran for medical care? Because I lived in Iran, and naturally after my trip to the U.S., Sweden, Germany, Austria, England, France, I had to go back to Iran. So I went to Iran after the second attack of sickness, and I came to Iran without any darmane. Uh, treatment, was <laughs> It's okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it was like this. I mean, in 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 um, the, the the mental health and the difficulties. Um, how does that affect your writing or your ability to do so? Nothing. Doesn't affect it. When I came to the United States, the people helped me to find a a way of life. I came to Northern California by help of Iranian friends. Yes. And the Nazahora Mabadi, my friend, uh, she gave her garage as an apartment for me. They made it and like an apartment. There I wrote five books. 
I was sick, but I wrote the books. And after that, I found that I cannot do anything. I couldn't do anything because I was really sick. I, I, I wonder about your life outlook. Based on, uh, I mean, certainly based on women without men, um, you're not someone who easily retreats into happy endings <laughs> when you write about difficult lives. Uh, as you and you put it about one couple in in women women without men, you write, their life is neither good nor bad; it just goes on. And I wonder if that's the way you see the world. No, at that moment, which one? At that moment. So, you know, I was very alone, without any love affair, or have a boyfriend. I was out of Iran. My son was in Iran. I was very worried about him. I had not any personal life. But I read the books and I wrote the articles. I wrote the books and uh, I wrote uh, On the Wings of Wind. I wrote Shiva. I wrote Asiye between two words. I wrote a lot of other things. I have an activity like this, but my personal life was nothing. I was alone. I wasn't happy or I wasn't unhappy. Hmm. I had a very normal life. So you asked me then or now, so what about now? Life is neither good nor bad, it just goes on. Does that apply to you now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like when you laugh. It's nice. <laughs> what is your relationship with religion these days? You know, you, you write something interesting in Kissing the Sword in, in the prison memoir. You write, I was raised in a Muslim family. And although I don't abide by the tenets of Islam, I've never lost my re respect for the religion. Now I'm in prison, I was being exposed to religious rituals that bore no resemblance to what I was familiar with. You know, Sharnush, no one would blame you if you were to be angry with organized religion or, um, or dismissive of it. Are you? Um, I, can, I can tell you something like this. I never go to mosque. I never go to church. I never go everywhere to do any religious act. But I have profound respect for the religion. I have a cross in my, as a gardenbander. Yes, your necklace, yeah. Yeah, this is always in my uh, garden. Neck, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> گردم بد گردم دیگه باید انگلیسی یاد بدم بهت شرط شرط بات وان دی آی ون تو فرانس اند انگلند اند ایویر این دی میوزیوم اند آی نیور سو اینی کراس لایک مای کراس مای کراس ایز ویری دیفرنت فرام دی Cross of the, of the church. Mm -hmm. 
You know what I mean? Yes. But I, I was... I inter- think it's a very old uh, religion of uh, Middle Eastern countries. Uh, oh. This is the religion of Tiamat. And I think my cross comes from that tradition. So you haven't converted to Catholicism or Christianity. You're, I, I was wondering about the cross, because I know you wear this Gardan band. I was curious about what the symbolic relationship of this is with you. Yes, but I'm not Christian. I understand. I have only a cross. <laughs> you know what I mean? I it's do. not. Christianity is a cross. Let me ask you a final couple of questions about something that is very difficult. Uh, we just had Fadid Zolond on the program a few days ago, the legendary songwriter and composer. We spent almost an entire episode focused on retroactive compensation, Farid getting what he deserves as a, as a writer, as a composer. And, you know, I would be hard-pressed to find an educated Iranian who is not familiar with your name, let alone your works. You are very well-known. Your writing is lauded and applauded and considered the best of our culture. And I really feel like if you had been a, a writer and published your books in Canada, if this is where your career had been, or the United States throughout your career, you would be like Margaret Atwood, for example, which at the very least would mean you would you would have had a very prosperous material life. You would be making royalties from all the sales of your books and appearances. You posted something on Instagram a few months ago that was quite heartbreaking. You said you need money. You needed money to be able to find a place to live and buy a house. And you posed this question very honestly. You said, why should a writer who has been at this for over 70 years have to live with no money? Can you talk about that? Yes, of course. I haven't any chance to find money because in Iran, my books are banned and they are all sell them in black markets. So there is no money from Iran. My books in here, they have translated into 25 languages. Uh, Woman Without Man is translated into more than 25 languages. Yes. But every country gave me $1,000 for all my life. So there is no money to gain and to live. But my friends helped me. This is a real thing. They helped me a lot. And I am very happy. Thank them because this is the only way that I can live. You know what I mean? Yes. I am so sorry that you do not get um, the, the the material compensation that you deserve for all that you've done. I, I, I don't uh, know. My friend looked at my horoscope. Uh, it was an astrologist. Uh-huh. He told me your purse is full of money, but a hand from the sky closed it tightly. And you cannot find the money. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that wasn't very helpful that your astrologer said that. Um, <laughs> although the image is compelling. I, I, I wish the purse that the hand from the sky would open the purse. Um, do you do you get support from the Iranian community in general? Do you 
a lot, a lot. Okay. They helped me a lot. They gave me money. They give me money. At, at this moment, I live in the home of Haide Khoramabadi. She bought this home and told me, go and live there. So I am full of mercy, full of thanks for all these people. So what can we what can we do about your writer's block? Do you think about it or do you have to just wait until it comes back? Uh, we can do nothing. I'm waiting for a moment, you know. Yes. I'm sure at this very exact moment this black writers will finish. But I'm not sure when. You know what I mean? Maybe this interview. No, I, maybe this interview will suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I look a lot of uh, serial, Turkish serial, Arabic serial, yes. Indian serial, uh, and so perhaps one day I try to write. Shahnush John, I, I am. Um, I'm so grateful for the time you've given us today. I know I kept you longer than uh, you probably thought, and you were so kind to to do this and to answer all those questions and to tell us about how you're doing. And uh, if there is any way that, um, you know, any message that we can send on this show to, 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 to help or do whatever we, we can for you, uh, I, I would be more than happy to do that. And I am so grateful for the work you've done over the years and for the wisdom you've shared with us. Okay, but I want to tell you another thing. Sure. Some of my, my books have translated into English. Tuba and the Meaning of Night, Woman Without Men, yes. Kissing the Sword, yes. and the Blue Logos. Yes. They are in the market. At the same time, the people can find English version of some of my books in my website. Dog and the Long Winter and others. Well, I, for one, having having just spent this this week getting to read at least two of those books, uh, would, uh, will wholeheartedly scream at the top of my lungs to make sure as many people as possible continue to read these books in English uh, as well as in Farsi. Um, you're absolutely right. This is a good way we can um, uh, continue to spread the word of your amazing works. Okay. Thank you for your time today. Merci خیلی عالی بود. خیلی خوشحال شدم که با شما حرف زدم and and uh, I I hope we get to speak again. Thank you very much. خداحافظ. Bye-bye. That is the legendary writer Shahnoosh Parsipur. So her website where you can find her books in English as well as Farsi and support her is shahnoosharsipur.com. We'll put a link to that on our YouTube site and on our descriptors for this show. Shahnus joined us from Northern California today. محرم راز تو بود،
Just a bit more, Shai. Just a bit more. Bring it back up. It's just such a, a beautiful, powerful melody. Marzier. That's from the 19th. That's got to be from the 60s, right? Yes, yeah. I think so. Even even earlier. I was imagining Shahnoush was singing that <laughs> as I was here, you know, right? So appropriate. As, as we just finished that interview and, uh, and we came in with the Marzier, I was like, ah. Uh, uh, the Rook team has reconvened here. Captain Reza, Groovy Shaya, the fabulous Keon. Um, <laughs> that was a... <laughs> She, uh, you know, the way we just went from those some serious subjects so that she would make me laugh with her laugh. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just, I'm smitten with her with Shatner's passport. It wasn't really what I expected. I thought I expected her to be so much more serious, but um, it was uh, that was uh, quite lovely. Although, of course, dealing with a lot of serious and difficult subjects, including the lack of compensation again on the heels of the Farid Zalan interview to hear that she's, um, you know, uh, trying to make ends meet is uh, again shocking and difficult after all that she's done throughout her career. Uh, Shia? Oh my God. I'm guessing you really <laughs> like Shia. Oh, I love her. I yeah. love her. She's so honest, so pure, you know. I, I can feel her soul i can feel her heart and also i can feel all no 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 i cannot feel definitely but i try to imagine all the pain that yeah. she had to to tolerating during her life and i love her i love <laughs> her i really love her. yeah she, I mean, she's almost a metaphor for iran in the last 40 years i mean all, uh, all of the the incredible difficulties she's gone through that from from sickness from physical sickness mental uh, uh, difficulties through all the all that time in detainment all that time in prison all that time and then I mean, every part of the story or what the point in the interview I'm just processing it right now she said they had burned her book she'd written a, a book mm. and then she had to rewrite the yeah. book I mean, it's just she. The fact that she just kept, and now she's got this writer's block, but none of this crushed her. She just keeps going. Captain Reza, you wanted to say? Yeah, it was. It reminded me of uh, the, one of the la later interviews with Marlon Brando when uh, Larry Larry King, I think it was, he did an interview with Marlon Brando, and he was so honest and earnest, and no fluff, no frills, just. You know, talking about his craft as if, yeah, it's just, I, that's what I do, that's what I did. And he was, she was, she reminded me of that, the whole interview. It was so interesting. She's pretty curt. Yeah. She just kind of goes, yep, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, nope, yeah. you know. And, <laughs> but then you realize that she's actually, she's not lacking in warmth. No. It's just the way she's very direct and, and, and straight. I mean, I, I think somebody wandering into that interview, not knowing who she is, I, I, I 
I don't know. I have to, I have to listen to it back. But I think somebody would sort of go, well, okay. She's not Taro Fee. No, no, she's not Taro Fee <laughs> at all. No, no. Like a Keon? I absolutely adore this woman. I want to pick her up and spin her around. I'm just in complete awe. I had no background yeah. on this woman. The, when she was telling the story of how she came across Khomeini 10 meters away, and she was like, okay, this man is nothing. I was just dying laughing. Who talks like that? I, and actually, while I was listening to her, I ordered her book, Women Without Men. I, I adored her so much that I was like, I want to know more about this. I want to Good read her reading. I was going to say, she is a legendary just, writer. Uh, there, there are, you know, there are people uh, who may be even shocked when the, when you say yeah. I've never heard of her or something, you know. But that, but that is part of the story. You're a kid in the diaspora. Exactly. You don't know, uh, you know, and she's her her work is transcendent. Actually, Women Without Men is a once you've read it. I mean, I just had the chance to read it this uh, this past week. You, you, I don't, I don't think it'll ever escape you. It's, it's, it's very poetically written mm. and very powerfully written. There's a film about it as well. Is that right? But that's right. The Shirin Ashat film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Shia, you want to add something? You've got a big smile on your face. <laughs> I, 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 I remember so the, the story about the American lover. That's right. That's yeah. right. Wow. The spy. So ended up yeah. opening a. I, by the way, I didn't. I, I'm sure people, maybe who, people who know Shahanush, know this story, but I. I she hasn't written about that and I, I I didn't in all the research I've never that was totally new to me that she has a, this like love affair that she had with the spy with the <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't a spy but he was a a Sufi by, you know, but he spoke seven languages so yeah I mean good yeah. enough to be a spy and, oh. uh, yeah I mean but by the way this is like a how um, the Iranian history and culture can play like a dark comedy. It's like we're talking about profoundly difficult subjects and she's made us all laugh at the same time, oh, yeah, you know, right. with her own resilience and attitude, you know, uh, it's it's amazing. And what was surprising to me was the fact that she said, like, she, she was like, yeah, I'm, I'm getting a lot of support from the Iranian community. They're helping me out and whatnot. It was sort of the polar opposite of what, We've been we've been hearing throughout like a lot of our interviews in the past. Well, well yes and no, though, right? I mean, I don't think she would have to go on Instagram and ask for ask for yeah, support for right. money if if yes. if the that's, Iranian that's community, i.e., systemically, yeah. had a, had a way of actually compensating artists like her. I should also note that we because we didn't do a roundtable or didn't talk about it. Uh, I went straight into Sharnoush, but um, I, I'm grateful for Hadi Hadi Khamenei yeah. too, and. Uh, um, w the work he's doing and some of the details I was uh, you know I, I I mean all of this is just so difficult you know uh, with a situation like Navid Afkari you 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 almost want to bury your head and go okay I don't want to hear about this anymore but hearing for example uh, th those were some earnest questions on my part I really didn't know I, you know for example is it a normal practice to not even tell anyone I mean I'm personally someone who's always opposed to the death penalty, but uh, you know, in places like the United States, as abhorrent as I think it is, there's a system, you know, you and then uh, you, you know, there's an acknowledgement of when it's going to happen, the exact time. Yeah. You and to hear that the family and these lawyers, they, they didn't even know that this was going to, that they just do this randomly, they do this whimsically almost, and they do this as yeah. a part of a campaign of fear. Uh, the whole thing is in complete violation to not just laws and, and and human rights proclamations around the world, but humanity, yeah. you know? Disgusting. <sighs> All right. 
<laughs> and now, letters of the week. Yeah, oh. That's right. Uh, yeah, well, we should we should on move the note. show on. And, and by the way, Cyrus Norasera has been very patient. He's mm-hmm. coming up, and I, I'm really looking forward to talking to him too. So let us get to letters of the week. Okay, so last week on episode 43, we had an interview with Iranian-American communication strategist, radio host, and national chair of Iranians Count, Bita Milanian. We had a few people write on that specific episode. On Instagram, we have username Zara, like K-H. She wrote, I admire and I'm proud of all the people around the world who stand for their desires, no matter how hard it is to achieve them. I enjoyed hearing Bita's story and wish her and the Rook team the best of luck. Beautiful note. Don't, when they put the, when you say username, mm. don't they put their name sometimes there too? Mm. No. I, I have to click on it. Oh. I mean, I Unless too much work? <laughs> I mean, I, would you like me to? It's a lot yeah, of people would write in. It nice <laughs> to, instead of a user 0655SA. Well, if, they, if we can find out their, their name. name. I mean, Zara. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me sooner? <laughs> Nobody yeah. brought this up. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, would you yes, like me to look I, them up? I echo that, uh, that beta story I found mm. very compelling as well. All right. Next up, we have username. Oh, <laughs> Sato Art. Raza, get the, get the name quickly. Sato Art? <laughs> yes, username Sato so Art. So wait a minute. The, <clears throat> problem, the reason we're not reading the names of our dear audience members who are taking the time to write in is because you don't want to click on something? It just, it's this a is, lot of clicking. This is your segment. <laughs> yeah. Why, you're the why best. can't I do anything Keon, right you're Keon. the best. Oh. You're the best. You are My the best. God, yes. I... <laughs> I'm so I love you and uh, but uh, <laughs> but everything before but I want you but to click on the thing. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next time. Good all note. Right, good right. note. All right. So username Sato Art says there's nothing more beautiful than someone who goes out of their way to make life beautiful for others. Truly proud of Bita Milanian. Well said. Well said. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then this week on episode 44, we had an in-depth interview with the legendary songwriter-composer Farid Zoland. And so on YouTube, we have, again, username Little Persia wrote, Great interview. Farid is an incredible talent with a big, beautiful heart. Mm. I agree. Yeah. As well, we have okay. Garshasp Nodan. By the way, yeah. can I just say, we haven't stopped talking about Farid Zalan. Like right. Shia and I are constantly oh, talking yeah. about uh, just the, that interview about his work, about, about his lack of recognition, uh, all, all, all of that. We just haven't. We haven't. We just have, we talk about him constantly. Yes. Yeah. I think amongst our audience too, like uh, mm. like th- yeah. th- comments just pouring You'll in. You'll see right and now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm yeah. About friends to and family them. as well. Mm. Like they've been they're reaching out. Probably one of the best. It's like arguably it really the best. Is. It yeah. really is. I'm yeah, very yeah. proud of it. And yeah. you're. Uh, um, and that's probably the first time your family's spoken to you in a long time. That's right. Wait, is that a joke or is he? I don't think he talks to you every time I ask him. How's your family? He's like, I don't talk to my brother. I don't talk to. <laughs> so mysterious. No, we <laughs> What's been, going on? We've, we've been talking now. Right. Over <laughs> Farid Zolan. So. Uh, then we have Garshasp Nodan. He wrote, Such a legend. I have so much respect and admiration for Mr. Zoland. His songs are all everlasting masterpieces of Persian music and culture. Not only is he a great master, but also a humble and pleasant person. This and the episode with Mansour Bahrami are so far my favorite Rook interviews. 
Thank you, Jian, for the great job and compliments on your Persian. Keep up inviting more Persian icons to your program. I agree. Your Farsi really impressed me. I I've, was not expecting that's that. So, You've that's been so funny practicing. because uh, Nasim Varastir uh, sent me a text after she heard the fa- uh, Farid Zalan and was like, your Farsi sucks <laughs> <laughs> because because I told because on the episode with her I, I was like I don't think you speak Farsi but she's like my Farsi is way better than yours you sound so ridiculous so thank you Kian that makes me feel better and uh, Gashas but I appreciate you uh, saying that yeah cool and then we have username chain analyst wrote thank you Mr. Zolan for your creativity passion and love of Persian culture you are a national treasure. You and your songbook will go down in Persian history like Rumi and Hafez. Mm. This issue has not gotten the attention it needs, much like so many other issues in Iranian society. Thank you, Jian and Rook team for these interviews. Very beautifully said. Thank you, Chain Analyst. Mm. And then we have username Mochiato says, mm. This brought so much insight to me on my favorite lyrics. Thank you, Rook team, for shedding more light on such important aspects of those masterpieces. Good. Very good. Uh, so this next username, my Nikon. Um, this like mm, this was up for up for letter of the week. A it, contender very, for letter of the week. A contender for he okay. like I have to say he's written to us a few times. He's he's a poet. This okay. man, oh. just beautiful. Just wait for this. Mm. And to be um, quite honest, I had to condense it, make it shorter okay. in interest of time. So, yeah. So is it letter of the week? No, it's I, I not. It's a conte- it's, it was a contender. Shia. Yeah. It's not God, the letter of the week. God damn it, Shia. Do you ever listen? I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> well, uh, he says, It's hard to imagine that a group of people who are so incredibly proud and connected to their history, identity, and culture pay so little attention to the arts and the very creators of that culture. Ask any Iranian about their culture and you would presumably hear about Rumi, Hafez, Hedayat, Farokhzad, or Haideh. So why is it that we give so little back to the art community? How do we expect artists to create a culture to flourish without support? When was the last time we bought a book, paid for a song, or watched a play at an independent theater? Many of my friends frequently spent a part of their income on designer goods and luxury brands, but few of them were willing to pay $50 to see the legendary Iranian songwriter Janoti Atoyi perform in Toronto last year. Art touches our, our hearts and souls, moves us, inspires us, and warns us of the fragility of life. It reminds us that everything in life is temporary and drives us to seek peace and beauty. And that, my friends, is why the arts matter. Thank you, Jian and the Rook team, for this wonderful interview with Mr. Zoland. Oh. That was just beautiful. Uh, that wasn't the letter of the week? It was not. Okay. Can you wow. believe it? By the way, you condensed that? Oh, man. You, like you should have read. Is that available in book it form? Was, was just, <laughs> he must be a poet. You should read what he wrote. It was yeah. just gorgeous you should write for our rook read Use, oh, username my nikon yeah username my nikon i know if you I clicked on that you could have found his name <laughs> username my nikon figure it out <laughs> Reza, reach look it out up. to us on info at rookmedia.com oh. we might have a gig for you yeah right. beautiful and Pop. you pronounce jannatiatari so french jannatiatari <laughs> <laughs> how do you pronounce it <laughs> you guys Janati. Janati. i was like in the reading it poetically like how it was i think written. that was a character in les mis actually <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> 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 Damn it. 
Club. Uh, so on Instagram, we have, moving on, we have, on Instagram, we have Nazila Faridzadeh. She wrote, wow, one of the best interviews that you've had, Gian John. Farid Zoland is an incredible and talented artist. His work will stay in our next generation's hearts and souls forever. To be honest, some of our more recent Persian songs never touched my heart like the older ones. The singer is nothing if the song and music are not perfect. By the way, you f- you speak Farsi so well. Thankful that you're here, Jian. <laughs> Take that, Nassim. Two for one. Are they just being nice? I'm going to play this back to Nassim Rez. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think then, they are just being nice. No, no. Well done. Well done. New word in your vocab. Nice. And then we have Elham Original on Instagram wrote, What an awesome interview. Just like all the other great interviews you're doing with successful Persians. You and your podcast are the best, Jianjun. Keep going, please. Beautiful. All right, and then username Kusha's Corner said, I just finished listening to the entire interview. Vaughan, incredible. Oh, mm-hmm. I know Kusha's Corner. Oh, do Kusha's you? Kusha's Corner, yeah. She does a, um, she's, she does a, on Instagram, if you go to Kusha's Corner, she does these monologues. Uh, sometimes she's in her car and mm-hmm. she's talking to camera mm-hmm. and does these monologues uh, about life, about uh, health, about, she's actually really good. That's really nice that she wrote to us. That's yeah. great. Oh, beautiful. And then we have some other extra letters from no specific episode in particular. Okay. Just a few people wrote to us. We have on Instagram, beautiful username again, beautifulmind111. She says, do you, have, do you have a Telegram channel for sharing the voices there? Then I can listen easily while I'm doing other stuff. Wait a minute, why, Captain Reza, why don't people know that we have a telegram channel? I don't know. Why aren't you I doing your know. job, yeah, Reza? We, we t- <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not particularly part of my job, but uh, no, we've been announcing, we've announced it a while ago, and uh, we. Uh, I think uh, Sarah responded to that um, Okay. That particular yeah. user as well. So we do asked. have a Telegram have channel. A tele- at Rook Media. At Rook Media, which mm-hmm. is the same search, as ours. That's right. You can join, subscribe on Telegram, and yes, you can okay. listen to to the episode. Okay. I think we should get to the letter of the week. Me too. Can, should can, I read can the next le- one? No, no let's, le- let's keep the okay. whatever you got left here, because okay. I'm, I feel bad. Cyrus Norestera is... Okay, uh, okay, yeah. okay. All he, right, I'm moving. Still on, you, have you got him on the line, actually? Is, is <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, let's get to the letter of the week. rush me Well, there's a guy waiting on the phone, and we've been going on for about an hour now. And we don't even know the names of these people, because you wouldn't click on their names. God damn it. I swear I can't do anything right around here. No appreciation. Look at that. It's time for the letter of the oh. week this is incredible because this uh this individual wrote to us from tehran iran wow. all the way from tehran wow. we have a goli maliki wait we know her name mm. yes we well, have her name oh, you clicked she on it. that's <laughs> enough for the letter of the week yeah. <laughs> so we, even though the person's name is letter of the there week we that's so she took the time to email us directly she says Dear Jian, Kian, and the rest of the team, greetings. Hope you're all doing well. First off, I have to admit that I'm officially addicted to your podcast since they're all so fascinating. I'm an Iranian girl living in Tehran who has been following your work since the early stages. I prefer the interviews with native or near native English proficient speakers, but they're all so good. I started with your podcast on the interview with Farinaz Lari. 
She used to be my coach back in Iran about eight years ago. Oh, wow. And I've always admired and learned from her. Afterwards, I checked out the rest of the shows and found it all so good. As I was listening to your show with Tehran Van Qasri, I felt the urge to write to you guys and let you know how great the whole thing is. His views regarding the Black Lives Matter movement and the similarities between the oppressed minorities were truly enlightening. I wish you guys all the greatness. By the way, Jian, stop pulling Kion's leg. Yes, thank you. And you know what? That's, <laughs> That's why, why she I got Letter of the Week. <laughs> yeah, there we no. go. That, makes sense that was the little cherry on top for the Letter of the oh, Week. That's that was, amazing. Somebody that was from amazing. Tehran, so fluent in English and so Beautiful. engaged with the Western. Uh, I love it. What was, her, what was her name? That was Maliki. Goli, Maliki. Goli Maliki. Thank you mm-hmm. so much, Goli. Thank you. That's really, that was a, a lovely letter. And and I do think Kion is the best. Kion and I have known each other for a long time. We razz each other and so so I wouldn't want that ever to be well, interpreted as me uh, no, never. disrespecting. It's how we Kion, show love. Kion Docht is how I know her, of course. <laughs> uh, um, so that's great. Letter of the Week, Goli Maliki. Woo! Keep them coming in. That's at info at rookmedia.com. Thank you to the whole team here. I want to get to Cyrus Norestet. Thank you, Captain Reza. Thank you, Groovy Shia. Thank you, the fabulous Kion. Well, there are some talented filmmakers who reside in the Iranian diaspora and create works that are poignant and powerful, but are rarely seen outside of art houses or foreign film festival screenings. But my next guest is someone whose creativity has made it to the top levels of Hollywood and American network television. Cyrus Narasteh is a highly accomplished Iranian-American screenwriter, film director, and producer with over 30 years of experience and over 100 hours of produced material in, in film and television. Cyrus was born in Boulder, Colorado. He grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, but also spent part of his childhood in Iran. He is a graduate of the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. As a writer, Cyrus has worked with prominent figures in cinema, including Steven Spielberg, Oliver Stone, Chris Columbus, and William Friedkin, among others. And within the numerous works that Cyrus has written or produced or directed are the ABC miniseries The Path to 9-11 and The Stoning of Soraya M., films that deal with extremely difficult cultural subject matters and often come with a requisite amount of controversy attached. He has taught at the Dodge College of Film and Media at Chapman University, guest lectured at USC and UCLA film schools, and mentored USC School of Cinema graduate students. Cyrus Naraste has received two Penn Awards for his screenwriting, an NAACP Image Award, an Orson Welles Award, and the Cinema for Peace Award for Justice from the Berlin Film Festival. His latest work is a feature film called Infidel. And he is the writer and director of that film, and it goes into wide release this month. But right now, Cyrus Narasted joins me from Camarillo, California today. Hello, sir. Hello. Good to be with you. Nice to have you on the program. Congratulations on the imminent release of your new baby, Infidel. I'm, I'm sure you still get a surge of energy when a new film gets out there. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, just getting a film made is a bit of a miracle. And then it actually coming out in theaters nationwide is uh, sort of the next stage in that miracle. Well, I, you know, Cyrus, I want to get into your personal story and how you ended up becoming a prominent screenwriter and director. But 
this infidel it's it, it, it i mean we should start with it because it's somewhat breaking news in terms of its imminent release the film is listed as coming out in 2019 but it's going into wide release now so what's the story in terms of how this was going to come out well no the film was actually uh finished in 2019 we had always intended for the film to come out in 2020 with you know the the covid uh situation sort of many films were pushed back and delayed in their release but we had actually always targeted sometime in fall 2020 uh for the film to be out so i've got to imagine when covid started happening uh, in a big way uh you were wondering what the what's going to happen with this film what is the plan can people actually go and see it in theaters or is it going to be yes yes uh, the film is opening on between 1,500 and 1,700 screens in those states across the United States where theaters are open. Uh, many theaters are opening, uh, you know, throughout the country and have been open. But, uh, for example, in California, where I am, um, theaters are not open. So, right. obviously, it will not be playing in California. I, I don't think... Uh, theaters are open yet in New York State, for example. Uh, but, for, uh, you know, across the South, the Midwest, um, most of the country, theaters are open. So releasing a film is not easy at the best of times, and this is now some kind of obstacle course <laughs> to releasing your film. <laughs> yes, right? yes, yes. It's, it's, it, it, the, the entire business is an obstacle course. Right, right. <laughs> So, uh, Infidel is about an outspoken American journalist blogger who's abducted in Egypt, taken hostage in Iran. I mean, it seems inextricably linked to U.S.-Iran relations and possibly a reminder of the story of Robert Levinson, uh, if not the hostage crisis of 79. What was the genesis uh, for um, this idea of making this film? Well, you know, I, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the Levinson case. I've always been fascinated by that case. There's so much mystery surrounding it. And I've also been um, sort of intrigued by the idea that numerous Americans, as well as Iranian Americans, have been um, sort of held uh, in Iran by the government there and used as pawns in, in, in policy negotiations. Um, but we don't really hear about it. We, you know, it, it, back in the in 1979, when the hostages were taken, it was, you know, leading the news every night. Every a whole night. new television show, Nightline with Ted Koppel, yep. began because of that. And it was we were bombarded with it. And I think what happened was I think it's kind of a political uh, expedience has, has stepped into it. And uh, administrations and presidents uh, don't sort of want to remind Americans that Americans are being held in foreign countries because it can be a political loser. So what does that it's, mean? it's what does that well, mean? it just well in the sense that a lot of people felt that the whole hostage crisis lost the presidency right. for Jimmy Carter. Right. Okay. So every president after that is going to say, well, maybe we should you know tamp down this uh, this hostage who just got taken and not make a big deal out of it. I think that's that's been standard policy for presidents of both parties since. So the idea that Americans are being held in Iran and nobody knows about it. I mean, the Levinson case is, is particularly egregious case. I mean, he disappeared in 2007 on Quiche Island and in 2011 was photographed uh, from a prison cell uh, in Tehran. 
And then when the Iran nuclear deal was happening, there were many members of Congress who were saying, why don't you uh, include uh, them handing over Levinson as part of the deal? And then, of course, uh, the Iranian regime said, well, we don't have him. We don't know where he is. Right. And then there was the news holding him. What was in the news this year? It was just a few months ago. Isn't he suspected to have died now? Yes, they uh, actually I think the uh, Homeland Security or the CIA or uh, or the State Department informed the family that they believe that Levinson is dead. It's really a sad case. Uh, I mean, I've been asked by a number of people, why did you just do the Levinson story? Well, there's no way I could get that movie made because nobody knew. Nobody knows the conclusion. Nobody knows what really happened. You but know, you, but, you, but you, could make a, you could make a doc. I mean, looking through your IMDb, right. you don't right. make a lot of documentaries. Your, your, your desire, it seems, is to make fictional films. I mean, you are a writer that are related to or based on true stories. I mean, this was certainly the case with Soraya yeah. M. Even elements of the path to 9-11, you fictionalized. For Infidel, I, I was thinking you could have done a straight-up documentary on Levinson, on what we know. Why do you prefer a fictional approach? Well, first of all, I've really never done a documentary, and I don't do documentaries. I do like true stories. And I think sometimes uh, when you are trying to get to the real essence of the truth of what happened, sometimes a fictional approach can be best, you know, because you're not, you're not tied down necessarily by events or unknowns um now on something like a straight docudrama is what i'd call the path to 9-11 you're talking about a situation where you're telling a story over the course of eight and a half years you have to pick and choose you have to make choices because just the reality of the of of the form itself you can't tell everything Mm -hmm. so by picking and choosing uh you are basically condensing you're forced to um in in the case of infidel i'm looking at a situation where there's a number of different hostages uh michael white uh Zhu wang uh, robin shahini um and bob levinson and i'm following all of those cases and sort of creating a fictional character to tell a story based and inspired by what happened in these real cases when you're going into making a film like Infidel, uh, at this point, I mean, you you have to know this better than anyone. You're making a film, not 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 unlike when you took on 9/11, uh, which came with all kinds of controversy, uh, um, and then uh, you're taking on Sharia law with uh, the stoning of Soraya M. Uh, when you're making a film that is going to be highly scrutinized and inevitably challenged by folks out there. How does that complicate things for you as a writer and director? Um, look, I, I, I take it very seriously. I take my approach. Um, I, I'm very conscious of that. But at the same time, my primary goal is to make a film that people are going to watch and be riveted by fundamentally uh, my job is to put people in seats in a theater and watch my film to the end but uh, hopefully tell tell their friends to go but yes there are responsibilities involved but my primary responsibility is to tell the truth as i see it and to tell it in the most entertaining and riveting fashion that i can that's my job if i sit around and worry too much about the chatter 
mm-hmm. about the consequences. Maybe this person will think that, or that newspaper will say this, or right. this critic will say something else. Then I'm paralyzed. So I'm when frozen. you're when you're writing, you don't let those those voices in your head. You 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 go you go with your story. Is that correct? I, I, I do my best to do that. Let's put it that way. I mean, <laughs> has it not occurred to you that you could make a romantic comedy? <laughs> like <laughs> like an old Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts, you know. You, I, know, I mean, why, why, you don't it, always it, have to go into the stuff that's going to get you in trouble. Right? You know, it's funny because uh, I have friends of mine, family, whatever, who actually think I'm a funny guy. Uh, but uh, that doesn't necessarily translate Wouldn't know to it. my Wouldn't work. Wouldn't know it from the films. No, yeah. But you know what? I did a film called Norma Jean, Jack and Me, which nobody has seen, which is a very light, very frothy uh, little movie that I'm very proud of. Also, a movie I did for Showtime, which is still the highest rated two-hour movie Showtime ever did. I did it in 2001 called The Day Reagan Was Shot. Actually has humor in it. It was produced, executive produced by Oliver Stone. It's a drama, but it actually has some pretty uh, funny moments. But anyway, I I hear you. I will say... um, one of the protagonists in in Infidel, the the guy who's the sort of lead Hezbollah guy who uh, mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. is torturing the the the, the American. Uh, he uh, first of all, the actor is great. Uh, I, I forget his name. Thank right? you. And and it's, he's actually very funny. He's got this dry British. Fantastic! Kind of, uh, yeah. I'm so glad you got that, John. And I think most people who watch the film do get that. The actor's name is Hal Ozan. Right. Right. And 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 Hal is actually of Turkish origin. Right. Uh, but there's a there's a there was a very quick funny story I can tell you about how I cast him. I, th- I think it'll tell you a lot. And that is when I was writing the script, I'm writing the character with this East London accent because he's a person of Iranian origin who grew up in London. And I was having trouble with the accent. Well, while I was writing the script, I got invited to a cigar party in L.A. And I'm hanging out, and all of a sudden, I hear a guy that's outdoors at this party talking loudly in this East London accent. It's a perfect accent. And I look at him, and I think, he looks kind of like he could be Iranian. I wonder if he's an actor. So I walked up to him, introduced myself, didn't tell him anything about the movie. But basically, he knew I was a, a, a film director. And we chatted, and he told me his story. And there was an edge of danger about him. Mm. And... Of course, I realized I, I learned he was an actor. I walked out of there. He was the guy. That's how I cast mm-hmm. that role. And I never asked him to audition, never asked him to do anything. Um, he came and did it. And he's wonderful in the movie. He's riveting. Um, he's riveting. I mean, he is. It is. He, he does a great job. He, he also is, however, Turkish. And uh, and and so no no I mean this is a, a, a so so let's segue into this because when you make a movie set in Iran right. I I can only imagine casting can be a challenge um, not only the principals but also the extras need to be Iranians and I was actually so heartened when back in two thousand eight two thousand seven when I saw mm-hmm. the stoning of Sarai M that you were actually using Persian actors who spoke mm-hmm. Farsi uh, it's less so the case in Infidel what what is the challenge for you. You want to know why? Yes. Uh, I contacted numerous Iranian actors, many of them friends who I'd worked with before. I brought Iranian actors into auditions in London, uh, in the Middle East, in L.A. As soon as they realized it was me, if they didn't know me, or they realized what the material was, um, they backed out. Uh, now, not there is an Iranian actor, a very prominent Iranian actor in the movie, and he's wonderful, Bijan Donishmand. Yeah. But um, 
Most Iranian actors were frightened to do the movie because of repercussions to themselves or to their family, because Stoney of Sarayam has a rather notorious reputation inside of Iran, also a very good reputation inside of Iran, because it was smuggled in the country and thousands of copies were made and everybody saw it. So I think it's the controversial nature of me, my association with stoning, where I had difficulty getting Iranians to act in this movie. That's a shame. Um, but also, uh, this is not, I'm, I'm going to take a stab at this and say this is not going to be a happy film for all Iranians around the world to watch, Cyrus. I mean, there, there are not a lot of positive portrayals of Iranians in this film. I'm talking about infidel. Um, and that's okay for an Iranian audience that is aware of, of all the different kinds of people within our culture, our diaspora, and our home country, including Islamic mm-hmm. regime zealots. But do you worry that for someone in middle America watching this, they're only going to get one extremely negative idea about Iranians and some kind of hostility towards the West? Well, you know, John, respectfully, I disagree with you. Um, I, I don't think the film does that. I, you know, I heard the same thing on Stoning, on Stoning of Sarayam. I heard the exact same thing. Yes. Yeah, okay. And, and by the way, I get Iranians who meet me who are very upset by my films. I get Iranians that I meet who embrace me and say, thank you for your work. So I I get all kinds. Uh, On this film, there are Iranians who are very specifically identified, uh, uh, who are helping uh, the uh, American character get out of prison, including prison guards who are working with him, including the mothers of prisoners. Uh, in, a, in an Iranian prison uh, who themselves are Iranian. So I, I, I just like to say in terms of just real getting like critically detailed, Granular, I would yeah. say there are, yeah, there are positive Iranians in this. And yes, there are negatives, especially the Ayatollah character, especially the guy, the Hezbollah guy. Uh, they are definitely the villains of the piece. Um, and, you know, we're dealing with a government and a regime that has been very difficult on its own people. So I make no apologize, uh, apologies for portraying them as I do that government and those representatives. Yeah, I mean, even if the issue is, even if what you're showing is the truth, I mean, there's, there's right. this is in, as you've, you know, we talk, no one can say Levinson didn't happen. <laughs> I suppose there might be people in the regime who might say something, but, but, <laughs> But, you know, but uh, but the problem is taken out of context. Again, I'm not I'm always less worried about some cosmopolitan person sitting in New York or L.A. or Toronto or London watching a film like this Uh, and and more worried about, you know, especially the kind of I I think. Listen, I think this film is going to do well. And I, I think it's going to certainly I could imagine if it's on Netflix or something, I can see people clicking on this. Mm-hmm. And my concern is somebody sitting in Kentucky who's never met an right. Iranian and watching this and go, look, the American guy gets abducted and, and tortured and taken to Iran and all. Yeah, that, right? yeah, yeah. No, I, I and I can't look, I can't sort of do my work and lead my life worrying about what some Yahoo, uh, wherever he is, he could be in L.A. or Kentucky, is going to think. My feeling about it is hopefully he also sits there and sees, oh, there's uh, Iranians who helped this American. Right. Oh, that's nice. Who are those Iranians? Oh, some of them are Muslims and some of them are Christians and some of them are Jews. 
And I think all of that, <laughs> you know, hopefully will register even perhaps unconsciously, you know? Um, so it's, look, there's always people who are going to interpret your movies in the worst possible way. Uh, and there's always going to be people who, you know, just interpret it, it perfectly. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I've actually said this to people. I said this to a woman in Toronto when Stoning Us I Am opened there at TIFF. She came up to me and she poured all this stuff out to me. And I looked at her and I said, you are the perfect audience for this movie. Hmm. And um, they're not all, not, it's not for everybody. There's just no question about it. Do you, do you come into this with uh, um, an ideological uh, uh, standpoint? I mean, I noticed the executive producer on this film is Dinesh D'Souza. He's an outspoken ultra-conservative. Yes. I'm guessing if the exec was Michael Moore, I would be expecting there's going to be a, <laughs> an ideological starting point to this film. So I can only assume if Dinesh D'Souza is involved, there might be one too. So, so what yeah. is there? I mean, did, did he say, you know, have you guys talked about we, we, we want to do this film with a certain slant or this, you know, I'm really, <laughs> you know what? But the bottom line is if Michael Moore came to me and wanted to do a movie with me or produce a movie for me, I would consider it very seriously. He doesn't. Uh, other people do. Some of them come to me with an ideological bent. Others come to me with a, you know, thematic bent or a financial bent or whatever. And um, I get approached by people all the time, and I have to chase my own money all the time. Right. Um, as far as my approach basically is, whoever's investing in my movie. Basically, what they understand when they meet me very clearly is that I'm making the movie. Um, uh, and, you know, if we happen to agree on certain issues and themes and ideas that the movie represents, great. That's probably why they came to me in the first place. So Dinesh D'Souza but, doesn't police your film and no, say, you got to take this scene out? Or... No, Dinesh was a delight to work with. And let me tell you, also probably because he makes documentaries and the movies that he really makes are his own. He does documentaries. He wanted to get into uh, sort of the dramatic arena and came to me um, and was completely honorable throughout the entire process. And um, I'd work with him again in a nanosecond. So uh, he was great. But like I said, if, if, if people of, uh, of any ideological persuasion come to me, I will sit down with them. But ultimately, it's my film. It says a film by Cyrus Naraste. It says uh, written, produced, and directed by me. That's what it means. Fair enough. I want to start to get into your personal story. And, and maybe a way to segue into that is that one of the subplots in Infidel is, is on the conversion of Muslims to Christianity in Iran. You yourself... Uh, converted to Christianity. So speak to me about that conversion and what it, what it's meant for you. Well, you know, it's been a long uh, process. I mean, my family is uh, Muslim origin, but really more secular in their uh, approach. So it's not as if I, you know, was raised Muslim. But I was born and grew up in the United States and was always fascinated. I remember at a Christmas <laughs> celebration we went to with some friends. I think I was seven or eight years old. And everybody uh, went up to um, take the, uh, the Eucharist. And I went up and got in line and got the, you know, thing put in my mouth and drank the wine. And <laughs> and I remember my, uh, especially my older brother, looking at me, what'd you do that for? 
And I thought, and, and, and like a kid, I gave the only answer I could think of. I was hungry. <laughs> right. <laughs> Later on, my wife, who's, who is American, who is Christian, who grew up in Ohio, said to me, you were hungry. You were hungry for faith. So, <laughs> and by the way, your, your wife who works with you, right? She co-wrote yeah. uh, Stoning of Soraya, right? Yeah, she's the, she's the real reason Stoning of Soraya even got made. I, I, I didn't think it had a prayer or a chance of getting made. So anyway, it, you know, it's interesting. One day uh, I, I, I was going, uh, after I made Stoning of Soraya, Anne Rice wrote a rave review and sent us a book, that, a novel she'd written about young Jesus. And, um, and, you know, there's a lot of other things going on personally in my life. My youngest son had, had gone through some very difficult years and he had turned to Christ and changed his life and that had a huge impact on me. So basically, I'm going to get my hair cut and there's an Iranian girl before me. And the hairdresser says, oh, she saw Stoning of Sarayam. So I meet this Iranian girl. She'd just been here four months. She says, yes, I saw something. She, Where was I am. this? She goes, this, was, this in, was in L.A. This is in, in L.A. L.A. Okay. And, and, and she goes, I saw stoning in Iran with a bunch of other women in a basement and this and that. It was an illegal, illegal copy. She goes, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm going to do this story about young Jesus um, based on an Anne Rice novel. And she goes, oh, so you made stoning to tell the world that you're no longer a Muslim. And now you're making this movie to tell the world you're a Christian. And I couldn't believe it. It was like, you know, like sometimes somebody says something to you and it just goes, it's sort of like the insight of it mm. just kind of blows you away. And she's a woman I've never met, you know, and she was, she was right. So, you know, I, um, are you saying that you, you, you don't think you could have made uh, Stoning Soraya M if you were a Muslim? No, I think I could have, but I, you know, what, you know, listen, that's hard to say. That's all theoretical. The bottom line is this. That's based on a book by Feridun Saheb Jan, yes. who uh, I contacted in France. He died, unfortunately, while we were making the film, but I got the rights to the book from him. And I realized when Feridun and I got on the phone that his Persian, his Farsi is not much better than mine. Mine is terrible. And it dawned upon me that the reason he was drawn to this story and the reason why I wanted to make the movie is because we'd both grown up outside of Iran, fundamentally. We were sort of insiders from an outsider perspective. And I think that a filmmaker who was born and grew up in Iran as a Muslim and had lived there all his life would not have touched it and never did touch it as a subject. But you know, there is something, I'm glad that we're talking about this because there is something that I have always found. I mean, I saw it back when it was released, and I rewatched it in the last couple of weeks, preparing to, to talk to, talk to you. This is the Stoning of Soraya M, the film that you uh, mm -hmm. uh, co-wrote with your wife and directed back in uh, in uh, two thousand two thousand nine two thousand nine. Yeah. Um, something I've always found quite profound about this film: Zahra, who is the heroic woman uh, in relation to Soraya. Zahra is played by Shohreel Tashlu, who ends up making sure Soraya's story is told and remembered. Zahra is not anti-religion. In fact, the very last thing she says to Soraya before Soraya is stoned to death is, 
Let's pray with all our might. Heaven is waiting for you. In other words, the film is not actually set up as a divide between religion and secularism. Quite the opposite. It's not an indictment of religion. It's not even an indictment of Islam. But of the version of religion that has been practiced (laughs) by the extreme Islamic regime. That's what I took from it. Uh, Can can you speak to that? No. First of all, your uh, interpretation is dead on at least what we had hoped people would interpret it or how they would interpret it. And one thing you got to remember is uh, the Zahra character that Sharia al-Dashlu is playing, she's Muslim. Uh, the uh, Soraya character that Mojan is Mojan Marno is playing is a Muslim. The women who want to stop this stoning from happening in that village are Muslims. So they're heroes in my story, too. So it's you, you know what I'm saying. It's like and and, and even I, I would say the same about infidel. It's like there's good Muslims and there's and there's and, and there's Muslims who are you know, perhaps misinterpreting and and perverting uh, the religion and using it to control others. So it's complex, you know, and and I hope people take that from it. You were born in the U.S. At some point, as a kid, you moved to Iran. Is that right? Like both your parents are Iranian. Yeah. So what do you... Both my parents are Iranian. Yes. um, I was one and a half and we went back to Iran. And what do you remember about that? You know, it's funny. I I was there till I was about five years old. Uh, so from one and a half to five, most of those years I was in Iran. And then I went back when I was, gosh, 20, 21. And the thing that comes back to you is the taste and the smell. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I mean good smells, you know, mm. the smell of fantastic food. Uh, the taste of, I don't know, certain spices in the food. It's just, I, I love Persian food. <laughs> I'm not a very good cook, but I do cook it. And um, I just, you know, I, I, I love Iran. And I wish, I, I wish to God I could go back. I can't right now. Um, but, you know, those those memories are really vivid ones of just running around and i remember um i was i think i did kindergarten in iran and um you know it was a a little bit of a wild time i just remember running around with my friends and my brother and, and cousins and going to parties and just eating great food and those are the impressive ways i remember watching a movie outdoors uh, at, 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 a, at a theater in, in Iran. We were watching, I think it was uh, Gregory Peck in Porkchop Hill. It's one of those vivid movie memories I have is, is a film being screened outside. This is pre-revolution, uh, obviously. This is all pre-revolution. Yeah. So, yeah, and um, this is early, this is late 50s, early 60s. So, anyway, um, yeah, those were sort of formative years. Unfortunately, uh, my Farsi is basically that of a five-year-old um, because that's when I left. I actually understand quite a bit more than I'm able to initiate as a speaker. But when I'm around Iranians for a while, uh, it really starts to come back. And um, some of the cast members in Stoning were actually shocked when they realized, boy, he, he understands what we're saying. 
<laughs> they couldn't talk behind your back. But, yes. but it, it also occurs to me, a guy who's growing up in, I mean, Boulder, Colorado, then Wisconsin, these are not hotbeds of Persian culture, especially back in the <laughs> 70s and 80s, for example. So um, right. how much did you um, identify as Iranian when you were growing up? How much did you feel like you could, or did you did you kind of hide that, you know, in sitting in middle well, America? Well, you know, because there was no controversy at that time when I was a kid, to being associated with Iran, I was very open about it. Right. I remember my teach my teacher calling me up to the class and saying, "Why don't you explain to the cast where your parents came from, and show them on the globe where that country is, and talk a little bit about it?" I was very proud to do that because it made me special, you know. So, um, but you know, my, my, my both Boulder and Madison are university towns. Uh, my father got his uh, PhD, and you know. Um, uh, taught uh, at the University of Wisconsin and worked in Madison, and uh, so did my mom. And university towns will have their Iranian student community, especially in Madison. We had a, you know, there were a lot of Iranian students there, and they would, you know, every year they'd have the Nowru celebrations, and my parents would always have their friends over, you know, because Iranians are so social. This is one of the things they're so the friendships that. Iranians have are just different and the warmth and uh, the weekends and the card games and the food that was very much a part of my uh, upbringing are your folks still around oh yes and what Thank did God what do they think they're, of your films well how do they know, feel about the stoning of right um, <laughs> well my parents are both 90 years old and my father still plays tennis they both have their faculties they're hmm. very healthy they travel so I feel very fortunate my father actually came to uh, Jordan with us on the stoning of Sarayam. I hired him because he was retired at the time and I needed an Iranian advisor who I trusted completely right. with issues of language and culture. And I just needed him there and he was a rock for me and uh, really helped I think the film immensely, and it was very. He was very popular with all the cast, much more popular than I was. That's quite beautiful. And <laughs> That's beautiful so, that your dad came. Oh, we had the most. You know, there are rare experiences you can have with your parents, and that was one. He was there the entire time that we made the film. So, uh, and I treasure that memory. You know, you're you're born in the U.S. I mean, notwithstanding those early years that you just described in Iran, you're firmly and ensconced and respected in Hollywood, at least at this point. Uh, you still choose to <laughs> you still choose to make films about the Middle East and Iran. Why do you gravitate towards Iranian subject matter? Well, you know, I think it's 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 relevant. I just think it's important, and. Um, you know, I, I, I wish that Iran could sort of get to that place where I was as a, as a kid, where it was just this wonderful, exotic place for people to go to, to go visit and to be enriched by. Um, but it's not. And it's in the news and it's it's it, it, it's a place where I, you know, I'm hoping that things will change for the better. And if my films can help get to that point, then I'll keep making them. The stoning of Soraya M remains uh, such a powerful film. Twelve years after its release, what take, take us back to the, what the, what the impetus was for for making that film? 
I mean, you said it, it's it's based on the book, uh, uh-huh. but but when did you know that you you I guess you guys you and your wife wanted to make this film? Well, what happened was you know the book came out here in the states in '94. I read it. Uh, my wife read it. She was profoundly moved by it. Um, and you know, this is an American woman reading this book uh, about an Iranian village, an incident in an Iranian village. I always felt it was a movie. I felt it was a movie that a Costa Gavras would make, or a, or maybe one of you know the important Iranian filmmakers would address it someday. Um, I thought it reminded me of a famous Western that I loved, um, um, whose name escapes me for the moment, uh, but I, it'll come to me. But anyway, the bottom line is I, I thought it was a riveting story that had power at its center of it but i had no hope of getting that movie made at that time in the 90s when i was in morocco in 2005 we were making the path to 9 11 i um immediately felt well wait a second um we could shoot the movie here because there's no way you could make the stoning of sarayam in iran i was I was smart enough to know that. Mm-hmm. And so I just felt, uh, oh, the Oxbow incident. That's the movie, the Western, uh, the Oxbow incident <laughs> about a hanging, Good about a hanging in the uh, West. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I just felt that, okay, look, um, maybe we could make it in Morocco. I don't know. And my wife had been a writer in the 90s. She'd uh, written a, a script that uh, there was a big uh, Hollywood auction for, and it got made into a movie starring Charlie Sheen. And she was a hot writer for a while, but she kind of got turned off by the Hollywood system. And then we were raising our kids. She got out of writing, and so I said to her, "You know what? Let's let's let, let's try and see if I can acquire the rights and, and see if we can develop stoning." So I got contacted for Adun Sahib Jam. Uh, in Paris, he was very difficult to find because, you know, the Iranian government had tried to kill him at one point. Um, but he was a wonderful man, and I got the rights. Um, and really, I just wanted to get Betsy and I working on the script, and I didn't think it had a chance of getting made. I just really, my desire was to just, let's develop it and to get my wife back into screenwriting. Um, but she kept pushing and said, we got to make this, we got to make this, we got to figure out a way to make it. And, he, he, and this is the biggest irony of all. I didn't think this movie had a chance of getting made, that no one would put up a dime to make this movie. And this movie came together quicker than any movie I've ever been associated with. We finished the script in, in like August. We had a deal in September. We were shooting in March. I was prepping in February the following February and March, and then it came out. The movie was released in 2009. It's just one of those things that it just it just came together. I found some funders, my uh, some American producers, who came aboard, uh, found some funding. We made the movie on a very tight budget, and uh, it was it was really amazing that it came together. I remember I remember seeing it at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival. And it the splash that it made there. Of course, then it makes a splash in all kinds of ways, including in Iran. And Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the, the former president of Iran, of Iran uh, formally uh, condemns and bans the stoning of Sarayam in Iran. But as you alluded to earlier in our ch- chat here, its underground distribution drew enough attention inside Iran to 
I guess, embarrass the Iranian authorities into announcing a moratorium on stoning as punishment. Can you reflect on on the news that that had happened and how you were affected by all the drama around this film in Iran? Well, you know, it was it was an amazing experience for me to meet Iranians uh, either in Los Angeles or I met some in London who would say to me, oh, I saw your film in Tehran. (laughs) There are copies all over the place. I mean, one thing about Iranians, they're very resourceful. Hmm. And if they want something, they get it. So (laughs) what happened is this film just made the rounds and sort of became this underground hit. And it was, you know, I'm sort of amazed when I hear this and shocked but fundamentally, I'm really pleased and heartened because that's why you make these films. You want people to see them, especially people who, you know, by decree have been told they can't see it. I'm very proud of the film. It became a crime, actually, to own a copy. Uh, there was a woman who was imprisoned because of it. Um, I think that uh, it, it had its impact. And, you know, for that alone, the film was worth making. Nothing unites Iranians in the diaspora more than uh, than a disunity uh, of opinion. <laughs> so, so I can only imagine you've, you've over the last decade received a lot of different opinions about the stoning of Soraya. And what what would you summarize uh, is the or how would you characterize the way Iranians feel feel about this film? Well, you know, it's changed over time. Um, initially, I think Iranians were a bit shocked by the film and by what it says and how it showed it. I mean, it, the film is very graphic. The film, I've always believed that as, as a filmmaker or any artist has to tell the truth. And I had actually seen a video of a real stoning. And, you know, in the kite runner, they showed a stoning where the gal got hit by one rock and she just keeled over. And I thought, well, that's a lie. So I thought in our movie, we're going to show it the way it is. And I knew that was risky, but I also knew that people would talk about it. But Iranians initially, I think, were a little shocked. Just on that point, can I just uh, describe that for people? There's a sequence... Uh, of if they if, for folks who haven't seen this film of the of the actual stoning of Soraya uh, in the film that is it's it's this harsh I mean it's twenty minutes or so that the the film depicts fully it is an incredibly brutal scene and there is even a moment where her own boys are summoned to engage in the stoning and mm-hmm. I I was well, re, when I was rewatching the film I was thinking about the emotions of shooting that scene and and. And you've just now told me, but why you would think it was important to show all of that on screen. It, it certainly is shocking. Yeah. I cried again watching it. Um, so so it does not surprise me that when you say the initial yeah. reaction was shock from... Uh, from uh, now, the, you know, it, it, over the years, though, I, I can't tell you the number of times that Iranians have come up to me and just thanked me and congratulated me on the film and said where they remember where they saw it and where they were and and that's always wonderful now every now and then you know i, I hear from people who say why'd you make that movie <laughs> you know i heard one of the funniest i heard was an iranian guy who uh, i met in, in los angeles who said to me how do you expect me to get a date after a woman sees that movie hmm. and i said you know i i, I think you'll do fine 
<laughs> so you know the, the, but when they say why did you make that movie what do you think they're well, really getting I, at? well i think that look um oftentimes because of world events because of what's happened over the decades um iranians feel a little you know whatever conflicted Mm-hmm. Uh, about what's going on in Iran, about how Americans may perceive them, mm-hmm. about the fact that they left and are doing well over here and maybe left relatives behind. It's all so conflicted, all of these emotions that Iranians feel uh, about their country right also now. Also maybe exhausted from, yeah. from having sure. to deal with very sad or difficult situations. You know. Exactly. And, and, and so uh, maybe w- w- they feel like things would be better off if we didn't have to address this stuff. Um, of course, obviously, I'm of a different opinion about that. I, I have to imagine somebody's come up to you in the last few years. Cedar's June. <laughs> Can't you make a film about Noruz or something happy? <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> usually, be... it's, it's usually a relative. It's usually an aunt or somebody like that. <laughs> right, right. As is that. Uh, it's time for you to make a film about, uh, you know, uh, so, some of the the majestic beauty of the mountains of Iran. I mean, there's so much to... Uh, uh, listen, I, I very much uh, appreciate your candor and and uh, your uh, the way this dialogue. I really do. Before I let you go, when we were when you and I were uh, exchanging some texts before this interview, you said something about having learned a lot and information that you can pass along to young filmmakers, writers, and directors. And I was reflecting on that. Here you are on the, um, the precipice of of a, of a new big film coming out. What what would you tell an upcoming or aspiring filmmaker of Middle Eastern background? is one of the most important lessons that you've learned in doing what you've done at such a high level over the last uh, couple of decades. Wow. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a lecture. <laughs> well, look, I, I'm approached oftentimes by uh, Iranians and Iranian Americans. Um, they reach out to me a lot and I try to be helpful uh, as, as helpful as I can be. Um, when I came to Los Angeles back in the seventies, my parents had had a sort of brief uh, association with a, a gentleman who became a very prominent television director in Los Angeles named Reza Badi. So I reached out to Reza and he really didn't know my parents that well. And he certainly didn't know me. And what did he do? He invited me to lunch on the Universal Studios lot. It was the first time I'd ever been on a studio lot. And he showed me around and he walked me around. And, and this is part of what I mean about that Iranian sort of tradition of, of friendship and warmth, you know. And, and so I feel a responsibility when I'm contacted by people. One of the students I'm mentoring at USC is an Iranian girl. Um, and I try to sort of, you know, without, I, I don't want to dictate to anyone what movies they should make or what kinds of stories they tell. I just try to convince them that whatever it is they choose to do, uh, that they do it honestly and truthfully and just uh, attack it with everything they've got, that they have to be fully invested. Because you half measures don't count, especially in this business, you know? And you're gonna, you're gonna be called to the mat, you're gonna be forced to defend the choices that you make, 
And so you really need to think them through and, and, and approach it as honestly as you can. And, you know, look, I, I've had a president of the United States, an ex-president of the United States, object to a, a work that I did. So, you know, you've got to be, you've got to have this thick shell. You're talking about Bill Clinton, by the way, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. The path to yeah. 9-11, yeah. Yeah, Bill Clinton objected to the path to 9-11 because we showed the opportunities he had to get bin Laden. So I just feel like whenever, a lot of times uh, film students or everyone is kind of thinks that it's, it's going to be this fun ride and it's going to be summer camp. Even if you're making, you know, fun comedies, <laughs> just the business side of trying to get those movies made and trying to get them done the way you want them done, et cetera, you're constantly having to battle. So you really have to be resilient and you really have to, you know, at your core, be completely invested in what it is that you're trying to do. I go out, I, I didn't realize this till I was. I don't know, well into my career, probably around age 50, that I'm better at raising money than I thought. Hmm. It's funny because my father-in-law used to say to me, oh, you should be a salesman. You should be a salesman. But uh, so, so uh, you know, don't hesitate to go out and talk to people about your movies and, you know, put together a proposal or a presentation. Become your own sort of entrepreneur, your own business uh, because nobody's going to advocate for you the way you can advocate for you. And one thing I always try to do when I talk to people is I talk about the mission of the movie. I talk about what this movie's about, what it's going to say, and why it needs to be made, and why it needs to be seen. I very rarely will tell someone, oh, in, in, invest in my movie because you're going to make millions. Uh, that's a <laughs> that, that is not my approach. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I would just tell people to go after it and, and be honest about why they're doing it and you know be resilient cyrus thank you so much for your time today best of luck with infidel uh your big film coming out very very soon uh and uh, i know it's a difficult time with covid and uh and negotiating all that in terms of the theaters and where it's going to play in it but uh but we wish you the best thank you john it's been a pleasure talk again soon thanks cyrus bye-bye bye-bye Cyrus Norester, an Iranian-American screenwriter, film director, producer. His latest film is called Infidel. Look for it in theaters very soon. Cyrus Norester joined us from Camarillo, California today. This is it. This is full time for Rook for today, a big Thursday show. Thank you to all of you for listening, supporting, subscribing on whatever platform you listen to us on. It means a lot to us. Thanks to Mo Rahimian and Inshufin for the help we can use it supporting what we do here I'm going to go out on some music from Arash Behzadi a brand new recording from May 2020 a piece called Music for the Soul thank you to the incredible hardworking Rook team putting in their time a lot of cases doing so on a volunteer basis Shia Reza Keon Ponta, Sarah, Susan, Roham, Mertog, Muhammad, Cassie. You can reach us at info at rookmedia.com. Find me on Instagram or Facebook at Giango Meshi. Thanks so much. See you on Monday with Max Amini. 
Mizun Washington.